Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on social media at Galen Trombley. I hope you enjoy the show. Greetings. Please hold for a very important message. Light speed sequence initiated. How may I help you? Bonjour. Security breach. The truth shall set you free. <laughs> awesome. It's a miracle. Mission complete. Thank you. Have a nice day. All right. Welcome, everybody. This is episode 207 of the Galen Trombley Show. I'm very excited for today, and he actually got his haircut for the moment. I just found that out. Um, first person, I think, that's told me they got a haircut for the podcast. He's kind of, we're kind of joking, because I do take a photo at the end, but we don't have video. Um, I'd like to in the future, but not right now, but I do appreciate it. So at least I get to enjoy your haircut. Um, that's right. My guest today is Brian DeRuther. He is the interim dean of the School of Business and Economics. And when I met Brian, he did not have that title. I was also much younger. And uh, so for people that don't know, Brian was actually my college advisor at Plattsburgh State um, from like 2008 to 2011. Wow. That long ago. Yes. And I think you're my only one. I think I started college undecided. I switched to business. Um, I switched to supply chain management. That's right. Actually, yeah. my s- second semester. Yep. Then I got placed with you. You got stuck with me. And that's, uh, like I said, I, I always enjoyed you, but I'm glad you're here. So yeah. welcome. Yes. And you you were on the eight-year Plasmic program, if I remember. I was like the Van Wilder guy. Yeah. <laughs> like I just kept partying. I just didn't want to yeah, leave. That's, that's, um, that's what I remember. I, I yes. actually, uh, I, I feel like I'm the exact opposite of Van Wilder. I like rolled in and... I was working at the time. I was coaching at the time, yep. and I was I had packed my schedule, and I actually got my real estate license while I was in college. And I just remember, I don't have a lot of memories of college because I was like a flash in the pan. Mm-hmm. I, like, I showed up, did my stuff, and I got out. And I partly because I one I didn't live on campus. Two, my schedule was very chaotic mm-hmm. on stuff outside of that, and then also I. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I really enjoyed supply chain management. I yeah. thought the, and we'll dive into that. Um, and then I got my real estate license and I kind of felt like I liked that style of work better than, um, you know, kind of working in like a more of like a corporate setting or kind mm-hmm. of nine to five type thing. So I ended up kind of making or sticking with real estate cause I had my license in college for a couple of years. Um, but I really feel like my college experience was not great mm-hmm. and not, not in a bad way, but I mean, I just, I don't think I experienced as much as a lot of kids did. And, mm-hmm. um, I've had this conversation with my wife who like lived either on campus or in an apartment, played soccer mm-hmm. there, like very active with them. It still right. is, is still connected to the college. And I was like the complete opposite meaning mm-hmm. I've met more people that have to do with Plattsburgh after graduating years right. later, kind of right. through my wife than I did at campus. Sure. But I always enjoyed you. I enjoyed our classes. I enjoyed the subject matter. Um, I think it's a fascinating um, industry. We're going to talk more about it, just Absolutely. how it's evolved in the last uh, decade. Yep. Um, but that's what I remember. Yeah. And I love good. Plattsburgh. I think that Plattsburgh, I think it gets a bad rap locally because mm-hmm. kids want to move away. And like, sure. I've always grown up here. Yep. I went to Plattsburgh. It was the only college I applied for, for the simple fact that I had no clue what I wanted to do. I had no desire to move away. Um, not that I was like scared to move away. It's just, I liked the area. I was coaching. I like, I kind of had my friends here. I was like, I'm cool. I'm good. My family's here. Um, but I think Plattsburgh is a really, really, really good college and I'm sure 
you can attest to that? It, it is. It's like a, it's like a little gem, right? It's, it's we're packed up here in just the beautiful North Country, the Adirondacks, and um, it's a great institution, you know, particularly for for local individuals who are looking to get their degree. Um, you know, we always look for the, the for the folks who are here local, right? Because we, mm-hmm. it's a lot less expensive for them if they can live at home, like it was for you. Mm-hmm. And so the, the the value that that SUNY Plattsburgh brings in terms of the the tuition cost lower than most other institutions, you know, that's unique to the SUNY system, allows folks like you who are local to to get a, a wonderful college degree. Um, School of Business is an AACSB accredited institution, so one of the top five percent of the schools of business worldwide. Um, allows you to get that kind of an education um, at a much lower cost than you would elsewhere. So. When it comes to like, uh, for, well, I guess first off, we'll go, let's go back. Where did you grow up? I grew up here. My, okay. Yep. I grew up in Peru. Um, okay. And um, I went to Peru Central School from grades kindergarten through eleventh grade. Okay. And my dad was in the Air Force, and so um, I was actually born in in uh, San Antonio, Texas. Um, okay. Lived there for um, about four months, <laughs> and then moved to England, and then we were there for about four years. Wow. And then, then we moved here to Plattsburgh, and then I was here um, up until my junior, up until my senior year of high school. Um, probably one of the worst experiences I've ever had was leaving Peru my junior year and having my senior year at a different high school, which was in um, uh, Dayton, Ohio. And so I, I finished high school there, um, and then had a variety of uh, educational opportunities and um, first jobs and so forth and kind of worked my way back up here to the to the north country so so what brought you what brought you back up here um well a couple things first the suny plasberg was just starting uh, the new program at that time in supply chain management and operations management which was my my, uh, my doctoral degree is in um, but i also still had family here you know my wife's family is from is from plasberg still lives here i um, had family um, not in plasberg but around plasberg um, and so it was just a wonderful opportunity to get back here. Um, I was raised here. I loved the area as a child. So it was a great opportunity for Tammy and I to, to raise our three children um, in the same area that we were both raised in an area that we knew and loved uh, and had great childhood memories of. Um, and so, you know, all of that was just, just kind of calling us to, to come back here to, to Plattsburgh. Um, did you have other opportunities elsewhere, different, different towns, cities, colleges? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My first job actually out of, um, when I graduated, um, from my graduate program was at Gardner Webb university in North Carolina. And, um, that is, um, a small private university. And, uh, I was there for three years as a professor of operations. And I was also assistant to the Dean, um, at that institution, um, was there for about three years. Um, wasn't really the place for me for the long term. So then um, I moved there to Indiana State University, Terre Haute, Indiana. Larry Bird. That's exactly yeah, right. That's Larry pretty Bird. much what they're known for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and me. But no, that's, that's it. That's that's it. Those go. two things. Larry and Brian. Uh, like th- yeah, exactly. I mean, that's really, uh, you should, if you ever get there, I'm sure that's somewhere well, there. What's their mascot? Like the sycamore or something? It, it is. Is it? Sycamore? Yeah, yeah. It is a sycamore. It's, a, tr- it's, it's a, a tree. tree. Yeah. It's a tree. Well, it's yeah. like Stanford tree, right? Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that, um, I, I was good friends with the, the football quarterback there. It wasn't the most intimidating mascot, but um, <laughs> but it worked. Um, and so I was there for about four years, again, in operations management. Loved it there. And if it wasn't for family and, and this this beautiful area here, I probably would have stayed there. Uh, and called that home and made a career there. But 
um, this area had a position. It was calling us back home, and and um, that's where we came. Supply. So was supply chain. Like, how'd you get into supply chain? Well, I kind of grew into supply chain. Um, when I, in my first position at Gardner Webb University, we started a logistics program, which is kind of the the I want to say the precursor to kind of the more modern supply chain um, program. And so that's how I kind of get into it. We had some alumni who really were into logistics, um, a gentleman for Bell Distribution who worked a lot of the Major League Baseball logistics contracts, moving their equipment, their bats, and so forth from stadium to stadium, particularly for the Atlanta Braves, um, wanted us to start a logistics program. And so that's what we did. We worked with them and, and a few of his friends, and we developed curriculum and started this logistics program. Um, for students at Gardner Webb University, so I kind of fell into it that way. It wasn't, you know, my background's in operations, which is, of course, um, a big part of what you do in supply chain. Uh, but that's kind of how I fell into it. I started to really look at it and 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 kind of love the area of supply chain, simply because it was, it's it's difficult and it's it's a challenge, and there's so much variability in terms of trying to to, to manage that whole chain of events that occurs. Um, so that's how I got into it, and then. Um, merged here into a program that they had created um, and then just started to, to continue with that program here. So when did the program start at Plattsburgh? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask me that. Good question. I have an idea, but I, yeah, I figure you might... It probably wasn't... It, it was... I see. I got there in, oh, 2006, maybe? Okay. So I want to say 2006, 2007. Because when I... So I went into... My first semester was fall of 2008. Yep. yep. And... So again, like I didn't, again, as a 18 year old kid, um, you know, I didn't know anything about you or anything, you know, just, right. um, and I didn't meet you until the following. So basically the start of 2009 is when I met you. Yeah. Probably your junior year would be my guess. No, I, I would have met, no, I, I met you. No, it was my second semester of my freshman year. Oh, it was. Okay. Yeah. Better so right. I ended okay. up meeting you because you, they had me switch to you as an advisor. Cause I forgot who I had before. I feel like I had, um. Uh, her name's going to escape me now. Carpenter. Last name's Carpenter. Oh, Mary Carpenter? Oh, uh, no, not no. Mary. Um, Herb Carpenter? Nope. Maybe I'm thinking of the wrong name. It's like a French name. I think she's from Shay Z. Michelle Carpentier. Oh, Carpentier. Yeah, yeah, Carpentier yeah. She's, she's still there. Oh, my gosh. She's a wonderful person. Well, I, I so, love Michelle Carpentier. So we actually are going, me and my wife tomorrow, tomorrow night? Yeah, Friday, are going to the Hall of Fame induction ceremony. So yeah. my wife was yeah. in the sports world, and yep. um, Michelle usually goes. We went, yep. I think, in the spring mm -hmm. and she was there and it, yeah. and it was funny um a lot of the players actually see players there's a few of the players especially the basketball players they really acknowledged her and i think she went because was still you know still stayed in contact but they Absolutely. were i mean a lot of really good things to say about her and i know yep. that she's been a mainstay at, at plattsburgh for decades yeah. but um i think she was my first advisor for like basically the summer into the first semester as an undeclared student perhaps yeah, yeah. and then I, so i picked supply chain um, honestly, I don't know what pulled me to supply chain. I feel like I asked her about business and I feel like she was just like, this is a new program. That's kind of cool. And I think that's honestly what happened. I kind of yeah. looked at him like, what the heck? Like, I'll try it. It's a little yeah. more specialized in marketing or, or, was, you know, yeah. business administration. Um, but I think you had told me when I was going through that I was going to be one of the first classes that had graduated with this degree, that which made me think, right. yeah, yep. 2006 probably mm -hmm. sounded right. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. so I guess what was the draw for Plattsburgh? Because again, you said they were an accredited business uh, business school. Yep. Like, what was the draw to have that, or who started that program? Well, that program I think was started by um, 
some long-term faculty there was would have been Nan- Dr. Nancy Church, which you pro- probably mm-hmm. know, yep. um, Dr. Kevin O'Neill, yep. um, and I'm I'm not so sure if Dr. Muhammad Shajuri was involved in that at that time. He might have been, um, and I think finance, right? No, he was um, Dr. Shajuri was um, management science, kind of operations management. He would have done I the. Thought I, I thought I took a finance class from him. Did he teach finance at all? Um. I remember I, it was Dr. DeJury. I remember that. Yeah. Maybe at some point. I don't know. So long ago. I feel it was like an early finance, like a gen ed finance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fine. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's okay. You're taxing my memory here. Um, <laughs> but I think they started it. And, and the reason there, there was no program in the SUNY in supply chain management. And we are still the only bachelor's of science degree in supply chain offered in the SUNY system. And so I think part of the the, the draw was um, we're so close to Montreal. We're the, the you know we've got that what we call the Montreal New York City the Quebec New York corridor where mm-hmm. there's a ton of transportation that occurs between Montreal and New York City that comes right here through Plattsburgh. We have a lot of industry in this area that is in the transportation subsector. So you've got Bombardier and Nova Bus and all of the suppliers that supply them here. Mm-hmm. So it was just a wonderful little niche opportunity for us based on the industry that was here, the interest of the faculty at the time, and the fact that this was kind of, it wasn't really a new program, but it was getting a new, uh, an area, supply chain wasn't a new area, it was just getting kind of a renewed emphasis. So I think all of that came together to create this program um, where universities are always looking to develop new programs that are attractive to students, um, to, to get students to come to that institution. Well, I, I mean, you, take, you talk about the transportation. Like I've had, you know, obviously Gary Douglas speaks highly of this. Absolutely. And I've had him on the podcast. Yep. And it's just that transportation cluster. And he, yes. uh, yep. you know, and, and, and his big thing was like, I'm going to screw this up. He said it 18 times in the podcast. My memory is terrible. Basically, it's like where, I think he said where things move. So I'm really butchering this. But basically, like, opportunities like where things are moving. That's and, correct. And um, the idea behind, like, what I always found fascinating about supply chain, and again, as an 18-year-old kid, I think... One of the hard parts is I have no clue what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I think, and even today, I, I'm fascinated by supply chain. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by logistics. Yep. I'm wired more of like, I like to have creative autonomy a little bit in like what I do. Sure. So, which is why, but I, I like drawing on some of that knowledge to my, like my own life, business, whatever. And it could be something simplistic, like household items it could mm-hmm. be something, you know, within our office. But I find that, supply chain connects the dots so like the one thing i found fascinating and still do is that you talk about like local kids if you have this program and you have so many businesses because again 10 years ago when i started mm-hmm. i don't know what the difference i would love to see the numbers then versus now but mm-hmm. it's grown yes. and uh yep. so you know to think about the need for that and it's really cool when you have someone that's already bought in on the area mm-hmm. that doesn't want to move because that's always a a difficult sell in a more rural area. It's like, hey, come up from a big city and come yeah. hang out and, and live in Plattsburgh. And some yep. people thrive doing that. Yeah, they do, yeah. But I'm sure a lot of businesses, they put a lot of effort on the recruiting aspect mm-hmm. to bring people and try to sell them where someone local is. Like, mm-hmm. kind of, they're already pretty sold. And, yeah. you know, it's like, hey, I got a great degree, great college, great yep. opportunity. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, you're right. And, you know, there is there is growth in supply chain. There used to be a time, and still is, if when you're looking at students coming from high school and looking at colleges, and you say, you know, you should you should think about supply chain management. You get this deer in the headlight look. They're like, what what the heck is that? I don't even know what that is. So, um, for students coming out of high school to enter a supply chain program is is unusual, simply because it's 
particularly, you know, five, 10 years ago, it wasn't even a common household name. It wasn't something that people aspired to get into, right? It's not like they know what marketing is. They know what accounting is, but you know, supply chain, what, what is that? Well, I think like you hear logistics now and you hear logistics a lot more. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. how many times do you watch like a commercial and they have logistics with like yeah. FedEx or logistics with like, sure. and actually there's a lot of companies that just purely work in logistics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the thing that I find like, that I think is becoming more common is you got to think too, like, and I'm, I'm just going to keep referring to when I was in college, but you're talking 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I mean, the speed at which things travel now, the yes. way the information travels, the yes. way, like when you talk about, which is all good. I mean, things are moving quicker, but because things are quicker, they have to be more efficient. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the lead times and the expectation times are way different. And, you know, I can't even imagine what it is now back, you know, Amazon wasn't doing two day prime shipping back, you yes. know, in 2008, yeah. maybe they were, but it's not to the extent we are now. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. to me, the idea of logistics, I think just by necessity and by the way that um, the world has evolved and the way that consumer behaviors evolved and manufacturing has evolved that, you know, I think everything's just sped up, but it's yep. forced, I'm assuming growth, right? Absolutely. Yeah, things have sped up and, and you're right. You know, it's, you know, we can speed up the movement of products, which we have, but it's that movement of information, right? That That is what's really made things move because we can get things and know things so quickly now that we're able to make decisions a lot faster. And sometimes I think what holds businesses back, and we, we take a look at the kind of the supply chain issues we've had in the pandemic, a lot of that is we, the organizations can get all this information, but then they lack the mechanism to to figure out what to do with all of that information. You know, what do I, what do, how do I, what do I do with all of this, and how do I make sense of it, and what's the right information for me to look at, so that we can make those decisions to kind of get the product where it needs to be right in the condition it needs to be and so a, a big part of what we see now is is the data analytics side of, of supply chain how do we take all the data that we can get so fast i mean it's easy for us to collect data i mean when you have an rfid card and you go shopping i mean all the data it can collect on you that we now have at our fingertips to assess demand and forecasts for products at, on a given hourly basis because of what we can see instantaneously moving through the supply chain um, is is a problem for organizations to to manage, and so all of that has created um, a need in supply chain for us to be able to figure out ways to manage all of that information better, so that we can make the the better choices with it. Yeah, I mean, I, and you got to think big companies too. We're talking about speed, and this could be a small company. I mean, there's smaller companies that every company has some type of logistics, but yep. there's smaller companies. But when you get to some of these. I would say medium to large scale companies, I mean, an adjustment on logistics or an adjustment on efficiency or speed or just saving resources. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you talk about like a minor adjustment, it's got, it's almost like a, it's almost like the idea, like if you're going to sail across like the Atlantic, but you mm-hmm. start like one degree left of where you should, right. doesn't seem like a big deal. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you land in like Jamaica and you're supposed to be going to like New England. That's right. You know, so I think that that's kind of the, I, I think translates a lot to Speaking of logistics, here's our logistical trains. We don't get them as often as we did no. before. So usually we've been kind of in the clear with uh, some uh, some noise pollution on the podcast, yeah. but it's all good. You guys will get a, a little background noise here. Apropos for us. There it is. I was going to say, it's a cargo train, logistically it, speaking. It is. Canadian Pacific. Yeah. Yep, there we are. Yeah. Actually, what is that? Nor- Nor- Norfolk yeah. Suffer. Norfolk Suffer. Yeah. yeah. So, like, so a little aside, because this is going by right now. Like, obviously, this is a form of logistics, right? This is oh, a form sorry. of transportation. Yep. And... and I guess from a uh, goods and, and you know 
shipping and stuff is is train still like what's the primary way of shipping is it still really a lot done by train is it tractor trailer is it air like boat no, the, 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 it depends the, the pure volume of product that is moved is is moved by truck okay because there's just so many of them um but if you take a look at like the weight or density of cargo, then you're, then a, a boat or a ship, uh, a ship or a train would probably be your, your the, the most dense or weight in terms of product that they move. Um, because trains are really good for you know high density product like agricultural products and so forth that that weigh a lot. Doesn't really matter too much if they get jostled around quite a bit. So trains still have quite a bit of. Uh, of importance in the agricultural, the petroleum, the gasoline, um, oil areas, um, as well as things like iron ore and raw materials that kind of come out of the ground. Um, but truck is predominantly the, the, the largest um, simply because there's so many of them and then they're able to go from point A more directly to point B without having to have a secondary mode of transportation to move it. So when you're talking about um Kind of, and this is something I've been trying to do a lot in my life, not just business, but life in general, is like really looking at efficiency and mm-hmm. really looking at like how do I do more with less or how do I, you know, put less input to get a greater output. Uh, where does that fall in logistics and where, or let's just say supply chain in general? Like, yeah. How big is efficiency? Like, well, it's, it's huge. And um, over time, you know, what, what organizations have attempted to do is to adopt to the kind of the just in time or the lean mentality where. You know, instead of having a ton of products sitting around in inventory that you pull from, you know, every time you need it, and then maybe every month or so you kind of replenish that, they're they're down to even just on hours of delivery of product, and so that creates a highly efficient chain because you have much less inventory in it, much less money tied up in that inventory because you've got less sitting there. But what that requires is that you've got faster, more frequent deliveries of products that come in. So the desire to create those kinds of efficiencies is wonderful. But then when you hit something like the pandemic, where you've got all sorts of demand now for products that you've never had, we no longer have the capacity built up in inventory to match that new demand of where the products are. So, you know, efficiency is wonderful, um, but it does come at a cost of being flexible. And a big part of the, some of the supply chain issues we saw during the pandemic um, was simply the supply chains didn't have the inventory of stock, and nor maybe should they have, for the huge switch in demand of certain types of products um, that were required during that time. Um, and so efficiency is important. It's, you know, we're, we're really good at making products in the production process. So when we take a look at where can we save money, in the whole supply chain, right? And the supply chain really is from when you get the raw material out of the ground, all the things that happens to it until the final consumer gets it. There's a lot of transportation, logistics, inventory control we can do in that chain to make ourselves more efficient. Um, But that comes at that cost of of being uh, flexible and having product available to to quickly meet demand as it changes. How, um, like when you talk about companies that just keep inventory in hand or keep stock on hand, you know, that's there's always a risk and reward because you're putting up front money and mm-hmm. keeping the money and, you know, just have it sit in a warehouse if it's not selling. So there is a, depending on, you know, what your forecasts are, I guess, for the actual um, purchasing of that, of mm-hmm. those demands, are you finding that that's become like the, how has that been affected with the pandemic? Or you find that businesses are now, can we just piggyback up or saying, 
Are they switching to trying to keep more on hand or in stock? Yeah, I think you'll see larger amounts of buffer inventory if it's available, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's the challenge. It's the inventory is just not there even if you wanted to, to buffer it. Um, one thing that happens when you try to create a more efficient supply chain is you look at your supplier base and the total number of suppliers that you have, even for a particular product. And so we reduce the number of suppliers, right? So if I have... Um, we used to have five suppliers for a similar part. Maybe I have one supplier now. So now I've only got one supplier in terms of, of extra capacity. If something happens, I don't have those other four that I can then pull from to create additional capacity. So the efficiency of attempting to shrink my supply base right, to save money in terms of, of, of um, the, the supplier process now creates that issue where I don't have that supply chain flexibility. What do you think the biggest breakthrough in supply chain has been recently? Um, it's 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 really all about the information. So the, all the new information technology that's becoming available for us, um, things like customer relationship management software, which allows us to understand the customer much better, mm-hmm. their wants, desires, and needs, so that we can build that into the supply chain. Um, inventory control systems you know all of those systems that enable the speed of information and the ability for us to understand what it's telling us i think those are the the biggest components of a supply chain that's that's really changed things we kind of talk about like speed again just the way that technology has changed in the last 10 years and we talk about the information speed we talk about the connectivity you talk about being able to track like you being able to uh i mean look at marketing like you start having targeted keywords and target like search history and, you, mm-hmm. and consumer behavior and mm-hmm. you know obviously you're getting like the Amazons and the Facebooks and the Twitters and all these mm-hmm. people getting you know kind of lashed out as like we well, were taking too much information. It's like well, is it is it good? Is it bad? Obviously, it's good for you know I'd say it's you could argue both ways. It's good for consumers because they're getting shown stuff that they would actually like, so mm-hmm. that some of the thinking's taken out. Um, and some people could argue, well, you know too much about me, and mm-hmm. I don't like that. And I think. Mm-hmm. It's kind of this uh, double-edged sword where it's like, I think it depends how you look at it, but I think we're at a stage in in this point in time. And I was hearing an interview recently with Mark Zuckerberg. It's like, we're, we're not trying to like take people's information. We're trying to make the connectivity easier, the life Mm -hmm. easier. We're trying to, you know, and, and, and almost not do as much as what people think. Like we're Mm -hmm. not that involved as as what others might think, but Mm -hmm. our goal is that we almost know you better than you know yourself. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, they're, they're looking at it as like, we can make your life, like I say better, but we mm-hmm. can improve certain areas of your life yeah. purely based on statistics and numbers. And mm-hmm. we've been using this stuff for hundreds, I mean, hundreds, thousands, different, different mm-hmm. obviously different levels of sophistication, but yeah. we've been using numbers to tell stories and to, to come up with um, ideas for mm-hmm. forever. Yeah. Now we're just doing it at a much, I, I would say larger, faster pace mm-hmm. than we've ever seen before, which I think is just forcing things to catch up and, and and evolve fast, real fast. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And and think about you know when you when you're ordering things online, for instance, and and the system seems to be able to understand me, right? So it can, I order something, and then it has the ability to tell me, I think you're going to like these items, and then it understands perhaps with a certain probability that I may purchase those items, mm-hmm. right? But it restricts those items. So in a sense, it's kind of pre-selling me on items that are either currently in stock or items that they know I would like that they would have the ability to get to me very quickly. 
So the ability to understand my particular needs and the ability to understand what I might want when I might need, might not even know what I want yet um, is, is one of the areas where supply chain and businesses have really excelled because it allows them to restrict their product base. It allows them to understand me better. So it allows them to create better forecasts so they can strategically locate product in the supply chain so that with the 98% certainty they have, I'm going to order this extra item. That's a little high, but um, they have it available knowing there's a, there's a high probability that I may purchase it. Well, it's kind of like when you go to a restaurant, you ask the waiter, like, what should I get? And like, you should get the chicken meal <laughs> exactly. because they know they have too much chicken. Like, that's right. That's right. Or you walk in and you see the feature on the blackboard. Well, not blackboard anymore, but so uh, I guess I got to get rid of trout tonight. Yeah. Like that's, <laughs> that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Special tonight is trout, right? So yeah, it's, it's very similar to that, but, but the algorithms they have to understand the consumer's desires are just phenomenal and the impact it has on the ability for the uh, for the supply chain to meet that demand because ultimately the goal of supply chain is very simple it's to match this the customer's demand with our supply mm-hmm. so that's it that's our goal so when you look at it i mean supply and again this is i don't know probably the technical terms of this but like supply and demand there's obviously the macroeconomics and the microeconomics mm-hmm. of it and at mm-hmm. different levels so mm-hmm. i would think at the grand scale, the macroeconomics of supply and demand. I mean, my business is all in supply and demand, right. 100%. We've yeah, seen a big true. swing both ways the last yep. couple of years. And, um, and and a lot of the supply supply and demand tells the story about everything. And mm-hmm. it's it's the cause and the effect of every single thing that we do. And then it forces us then to take basic economics and then, which is factual, you can't argue with their numbers. It's mm-hmm. like black and white. You take that and then you go into the idea that now I have to explain this to a, a person with all their traits that makes them a human and their emotions and everything else. And you try to connect that. And, and I find that like in our business, um, we rely very heavily on economics, very mm-hmm. heavily on supply and demand. It, it, we're in a commodity market like right. that's And at the real, at the end of the day, you know, people are always asking like, well, why is the price, you know, like even right now you're seeing interest rates going up. Well, interest rates for homes, if somebody asks like, oh, there's a seller's market, now it's turning into a buyer's market. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, 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 it's still a seller's market. Mm-hmm. So the seller, the market of a seller or a buyer is supply and demand. Right. So naturally, the supply of homes right now on the sell, for a seller, we don't have enough homes for mm-hmm. buyers. Right. The problem is interest rates going so high so quickly mm-hmm. has two things. Buyers always drive the market because right. they're the ones that can physically purchase the product. Mm-hmm. And what happened is the interest rate goes so quickly that seller or buyers are like, yes, I can buy a house. I'm like, oh no, now my payment is three hundred dollars more right. for that same house. Well, what's happened? They they have a budget. They have means. Obviously, mm-hmm. not, even not even taking into account inflation, they have really that sweet spot of what they can afford, which is really the same as what it was before. In mm-hmm. the most part, we'll say it's for this purpose. We'll say it's the same. Mm-hmm. The problem is sellers still expect they're going to get twenty, thirty, forty thousand higher than what right. they're really going to get now. Yep. Because the money coming in is going to the bank and in interest, not going to the seller mm-hmm. in the purchase price. Price, right. and our biggest thing is we're in that we're in that little um, weird transition period where sellers don't understand this. And you could talk to your, your purple in the face; yeah. they still think, "Why is my home not selling?" This is great. I'm like, I I can tell you because that person that could buy your home at this price now can only afford two fifty instead of two ninety five, right. and you still think for some reason that you're going to get two ninety five or that these people. Or that $350,000 people are not going to come down and buy this house. I'm like, yeah. well, no, because their expectation is now what was just $350,000. Mm-hmm. But it, it stems from supply and demand. Right. And, and 
um, meaning that buyers have demand for homes, just not at the demand at the price. Yeah. So it's like two different supply and demand factors there. But that's it's, yeah. Yeah, and you know it's interesting because I guess when interest rates rise. I would think it becomes more of a buyer's market because your sellers would have to think about reducing the price to offset the increase in. Well, in that yeah, so in that scenario, if you take if you take a buyer, and, and I'm just gonna use easy like let's say they're at 250, and now the purchase value the purchase power of that buyer is now based on everything. The payment the monthly payment mm-hmm. stays the same, right? But because the the interest rate is more money is going to the bank, and that makes up your mortgage payment a mm-hmm. portion of it, which is principal and interest. That's going to the bank. So the value, they can still afford, say, a $1,500 a month payment. The problem is $1,500 now, let's say, equals $200,000, mm-hmm. where six, seven, eight months ago to a year ago, it was equal to $250,000. Right. Sellers, yes, it's awesome. You're getting $250,000. That's great. But what's happening is the bank's not getting a lot of interest. Mm-hmm. And inflation and everything else, the reason they raise interest rates is to make borrowing harder right. or not less. So what mm-hmm. happens is, I mean, basically, it's just to control the money, right. control the price, control inflation. So it's a, it's a buyer's, it's not, I wouldn't even say it's a buyer's market because again, if you're looking at the dollar amount, yes, you're not spending $250,000 on a mm-hmm. home, you're spending 200. Mm-hmm. Your monthly payment's about the same though. Right. So, so the, the problem, it really affects interest rates going up at the end of the day is going to affect the seller more than it's going to affect the buyer because mm-hmm. the seller's not getting as much money. Right. And it doesn't really matter if you're selling and then turning around and buying a home. It matters for the people that are like, I'm selling my home and I'm renting, I'm moving away, I'm just downsizing. Right. Like That's the ones that it hurt, which is the people that capitalized over the last couple of years made out really well. Mm-hmm. Um, but once the sellers get down to where they should be to match the new interest rate price, we're going to go right back into a, sell- a really deep seller's market because right. we don't have the inventory. Right, I see. Okay. Yeah. 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 So yeah. that's why it, it, it's kind of a weird, as I'm saying, it's like a two-way supply and demand issue mm-hmm. because it's... The demand is that the buyers don't want to pay X for their home because of the interest rates. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then I know you see, of course, in this area and probably everywhere else, your tax assessments are rising, right? Mm-hmm. We seem to rise higher than the value of the property. And, and I'm sure that that goes into the overall ability to afford a home as well. It, it, do, it does. So like mm-hmm. if you, so our, our, almost every place in Clinton County, every home, every town got reassessed within the last like year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing to look about with this, with assessed values is assessed value is the price of just purely for your taxes. That what you pay in taxes is made up of two numbers. It's made up of your assessed value and your tax rate. Mm-hmm. And they have to multiply together based on everybody in that, that taxable or assessable area, get you your tax levy. So what people think is that like you, you know, people were blasting over on Facebook. I can't, this is crazy. My assessment up 50, 80, hundred thousand dollars. I'm like, well, one, it hasn't been assessed in a long time. And number two, it's only relevant if your taxes went up. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know, like I have two properties that my assessed value went up probably combined like 70,000, $80,000, but both of my monthly payments went down because of the tax rate. Mm -hmm. So I could scream and yell that I can't believe my assessed value went up. Well, the thing is, both assessed values are still less than what I could sell it on the market. Right. And I had this conversation yesterday with um, a guy. He was like, "Well, you know, the assessed value is, you know, one hundred fifty thousand. Like, they're they got a loan, you're paying all this extra money." I said, "Well, that's not true because the assessed value has nothing to do with the purchase price." Right. Yep. And I kind of joked. I said, "Well, if the assessed value is truly what the house is worth, and it's assessed at one fifty, then." Go grab a price tag, go put it on the front door and write 150 on it. Mm-hmm. And it'd be like going to a store and buying, you know, some food off the shelf. Like yeah. that, there'd be a set price. 
but real estate is a variable market. It's not. It's not a. It's not, you know, there's nothing. Um, there's no set price in real estate. Right. So this that's why it's kind of you know once people realize that like yeah you're right I wouldn't just go put a um, price tag on it for the assessed value. Mm-hmm. You realize the appraised value, which is another re- reason is they're both weird A letter or A words. Of course. Yeah. So people always confuse them. But the appraised value is what the bank would value it at for your loan, and you do need it to appraise out mm-hmm. to get the money the, mm-hmm. the bank would lend. Yeah. The assessed value has no bearing unless you know that it's going to get reassessed higher, and that right. would yes affect your mortgage. Yeah. So. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, it's it's you know you always seem to have the the bank's assessment different than the appraisal by quite a bit sometimes, and that's um, what's well, kind of like again the supply and demand. Like there was a couple of years where it was close. Yeah, and back yeah. when I first got into real estate, when I was in uh, college, yeah. there were homes appraising out less than the assessed value. Yeah, yeah. but it was supply and demand because yeah. it was a major buyer's market. Yeah, you know, I think there there's an increase in interest in in real estate and real estate investment within I think college. Um, college-age students, you know, I know we've just started, a, uh, I think it's a real estate investment club, and I yeah. think I, I, I threw your name out there. I've, for, I've been contacted. You have? Okay. Which I, I, what yeah. I'll say about that, too, yeah. the, the kid that reached out, um, mm-hmm. when people typically say something's starting, and like, this, this kid's going to yeah. do it, yeah. my expectation level is like, I want to see how gumptious this kid is. Yeah. And I'll, I don't, I've never met this guy, yeah. but he... Followed up very soon after you had sent something out, and he's mm-hmm. contacted me probably three times since. So yep. I'm like, that's the hustle's there. I like that. Well, but you know what? We had um, uh, a what we call a, a school of business club fair where we had our, our we have about eleven clubs in the school of business, and they they had they had tables um, from like eleven to two during kind of our busiest day, which was the Thursday, and students would come by and kind of sign up for interest in clubs and that particular club had two pages of students with names on it in terms of interest in participating in that club and that that's surprising because you look that was the biggest one that was the biggest interest of students um, was in that that particular club and it, it got us to thinking you know maybe is there something we should we should do in in preparing students for for the real estate market what a I have my theory, but what do you what do you think your theory is on that? Why would that be? Do you think was the the highest uh, name jotted down bit club? <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's probably the newest one. But I I, I I think that people might think you know you see these shows on TV and flipping and all sort mm-hmm. of they I think it's an easy way to make money, um, you know, um, in terms of investment, you know, and oftentimes real estate is a uh, correct me if i'm wrong but it's a little bit of a safer investment in the long term mm-hmm. than than stocks and so forth so it's it's not as volatile and correct. and i think yeah. um i i kind of i'm gonna agree with you that i think the interest on that is the is what is portrayed not i want to say portrayed i don't think it's I think there's some people that portray it as like a get rich quick scheme, mm-hmm. which is absolutely not. It's probably the worst way to get rich quick. <laughs> yeah, but I think if you're, like you said, it's more of like a steady, slow climb. Mm-hmm. And what I do think is that when you talk about the TV shows, you ha- you talk about, um, and, and I'm going to talk about the investing portion, the flipping houses mm-hmm. one. Um, then you get the stuff like the million dollar listings, and that's brokers, and that's people selling. Right. That'd be like me right. in a fancy suit selling New York City. Yes, but I can't I, I can't see that. But maybe who knows someday. <laughs> it's not my style. No, I, 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 so. I'm, I'm, I think I'm a little too slow moving, and I don't like the traffic. But um, if, if um, but then the other side of the coin is, I think when you look at like social media, and you look at Instagram, and you look at Facebook, and you look at TikTok, and you look at all these younger guys that are or, or girls or whatever, and they're posting like I'm, you know, bought this house, did this, did that, and and it brings out 
almost a celebrityness around it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's cool, mm-hmm. but I think it's cool in the sense that like I love learning about stuff. And I think that the fact that they're learning about an industry, right. I think is cool. Whether or not they actually dive into it, but I think just having the knowledge base of what it entails and, mm-hmm. and really as a an adolescent, you know, learning and not I mean, most 18, 19 year old kids don't know what they're doing, 20 year old kids. Right. But I think the more you try and the more mm-hmm. you experience and the more you kind of f- figure out your own niche and, and really what you like doing. Right. So that's why I'm excited to get it signed up. It's good. It's, yeah. Yeah. So we'll see where it goes. You know, it's new and, and I don't know if they've met since then or anything, but um, it was exciting, you know. So, um, yeah. So, so question for you on the new title. When I knew you, what was your formal title back then? Uh, probably at that point when I first started was an assistant professor. Did it have anything to do with supply? Because weren't you the chair of supply chain? Or was that Kevin? I, I was. Nope, I was. Kevin okay. was chair, and then I was chair um, for a little while. Um, but that, that's correct. So um, I was chair, and then I moved into from there into the associate dean's role, okay. um, which I still taught a course a semester, still in supply chain, but I did a lot more administration. And that particular role, I worked uh, predominantly with students. Um, I, you know, work with students, incoming students. I helped incoming students create schedules. I worked with current students and, and I was the one who would get student complaints. Not that we had many, but, uh, occasionally we'd have one or two. Um, <laughs> I would deal through those, um, those issues as well. Um, did a lot with the scheduling. Um, and then I dealt with some faculty issues. So, so I did that for, um, about three years. And then, um, our Dean, um, at that time, Rowena Ortiz Walters decided to take a position at the Greeley School of Business, St. Mary's School of Business in San Antonio. Great school. Um, she's doing wonderful things there. Um, but that allowed me to kind of step into this interim role, which I've been in now. This is the second year I've been in that role. And, and what does, so interim means you're a placeholder basically until they find mm-hmm. a dean? Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yes, is that correct. like an active search? They are, um, my understanding is that um, they will begin a search for that position um, soon within the, within the next few weeks. And is that something that you, I mean, are you throwing your hat in the ring for that? <laughs> or can you not say, if you can't say it, no, say it. I, I could, I, most likely I will. You yeah. know, I've, I've uh, been doing it a while that. The challenge with last year was it was our accreditation year, reaccreditation year. So I had to work through all of that, the process of, of AACSB reaccreditation, which we received in June. Which is um, it was successful. Yeah. It was. Um, but that's a lot more work than people realize um, uh, in terms of putting that, that together and assessing yourself for the past five years. So that took a lot of time. Um, but yeah, I probably will um, uh, put my, you know, apply and, and see where it goes. You know, if... Um, if, if I'm not the one chosen, you know, I can, uh, there's plenty for me to do there, you know? So, but, and as a Dean of the school of business and economics, this obviously is not just supply chain. So this is, mm-hmm. are you really the, I'd say the head figure the person running that department? Yeah. You're uh, the Dean is the chief academic officer in this case of the, the, the division of the school of business and economics. So. So, so like the CEO of that. Yeah, I guess. I guess if like a correct. Yeah. Parallel. Yes, yeah, that's right. You you deal with everything from hiring faculty to to budgets um, to oh. faculty concerns to student concerns to curriculum development, overseeing that the faculty really do the development of the curriculum. Uh, you just kind of oversee it. Um, so everything that involves uh, anything to do with the school of business, um, even um, building maintenance issues. 
um, things you wouldn't even think about um, that you, you deal with in terms of um, weeds that are growing in our weed lot. And <laughs> it's like, really? That's part of me now. We're not talking about the new, the new legalized weed lot. No, we're like about the trees plant. and, yeah, yeah, yeah correct. <laughs> Stuff coming through the sidewalk. Yeah, That's right. Um, yeah. So when you, uh, I, I kind of use this as, I'll use it very loosely, but what is like a, a, a day or a week in the life of, of, uh, of a, I guess, a dean of a school of business and economics? It changes, and that's the neat thing about the role is that there isn't a day that's that's the same. So, um, there's always um, right now we're we're hiring um, for several positions. So I've got a lot of that going on right now in terms of um, folks coming to campus for the interview process and interviewing and making decisions on uh, with the search chair and the faculty on who we're going to bring in for those positions. Um, I oftentimes have faculty come in um, who want money for something. And so I work through some of the budgets to see if we have funding that might be appropriate for what they're looking to do. Um, I meet at the provost cabinet level, which is with the other deans to, to go over the academic affairs for the university. Um, I, I serve on several committees. Um, I, I deal with helping to develop schedules of helping to identify faculty for courses and course loads, um, faculty qualifications to retain course loads and all sorts of things you don't even necessarily think about. Um, so it's, it's just different every day. How, uh, do you have any support staff or any like office of, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, there's an office of the Dean. Yeah. Yep. And, um, there's, um, um, John Parmley, who is our assistant Dean. So he's doing, um, quite a bit of what I did as associate Dean. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have, um, some administrative staff. We have two administrative assistant ones. Then, um, I have, um, Justine Parkinson, who is our director of internship and career opportunities. Yep. And then, um, Amelia Lucia, who is our academic coordinator, who predominantly deals with the new online accounting program, which is phenomenal growth. We have almost 380 students in that program. Wow. Um, so she helps coordinate that particular program. Um, so that is um, the kind of the dean's office staff. Okay, so it's, I was say, it's, get... it's a lean staff, believe it or not, but okay. it's 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 there. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say, so practicing what you preach, kind of deal. That is exactly correct. <laughs> um, so when it comes to, uh, like I said, you have so many things going on. Like how how do you? try to structure your day how do you try to manage your time your tasks your your uh, priorities well it it it, it just kind of comes you know you've got your things of, of that you have to do there you know you've got your list of things and you've got your things that have been on that list for like three weeks that can still probably wait a little longer mm-hmm. right um, but you have those emergent issues that you know need to be taken care of right away so hiring issues are always an important thing um, that, that need kind of immediate, you know, dealing with, um, in terms of getting the right people in the door. Um, so it just depends. Um, budget problem, budget issues, um, are always things that you have to deal with kind of in an emergent nature. Um, but the nice thing about academics is there really is very seldom something where I, that's so emergent that I need to act on it within, within an hour. It, that's mm-hmm. a rarity in this, in that environment. Right, which is the nice thing about it, um, because it gives you time to develop a solution to things. It gives you time to think through things. Um, 
So it's kind of hard to give what's on, on a given day. You know, I, I have to do timesheets for, for my staff and for the faculty. So um, most days I'm on there approving vacation time off and those kinds of things as well. Um, the mundane things people just don't see but need to happen in order to keep any business functioning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everything kind of falls on the dean in terms of, of budget and human resources and faculty deployment and maintenance and you name it. Anything related to the school of business comes comes in my way. How is the enrollment for like? Is the enrollment down at all from um, COVID, or is the enrollment down? I guess even like, are you, st- are you still doing anything remotely now? Or no, we're 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 back to normal in the sense of um, nor- normalcy, which is nice. I mean, students are back on campus. We're in the classroom. Um, you know, social distancing isn't required, although a lot of people still practice it. Masks aren't required, although some certain people still wear that at their comfort level. Um, but we're actually back to some sense of normalcy, which is which is the wonderful part of, of, of this particular semester. It's really the first time in a few years. Um, we certainly did see an enrollment loss during the pandemic times because particularly SUNY Plattsburgh as more of a residential university, people prefer to come on campus for their degree. So we did see a decline. Um, School of Business, however, um, we have seen an uptick in enrollment. We are, um, from last fall to this fall, we have an increase of about 2.5% in student enrollment. Um, And um, that's, although the university is down um, in terms of its overall enrollment, um, um, School of Business is actually up. Um, So we do see that from the pandemic. But larger than that, in terms of enrollment, is the fact that folks are having fewer children so you have fewer folks graduating from high school so the market that you're pulling from has shrunk significantly and is it's it's forecasted to continue to shrink um at least through 2025 2026 so the pool of people we have the market we have to pull from is much smaller so everyone's pulling from this smaller market and mm-hmm. so it's it's it becomes more of a challenge for universities to 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 get people to come to their institution. You have to sell it to them. And so a big part of what universities are doing now is creating unique ways to sell the university and their programs to new incoming students. Um, we're also developing new programs, new programs that are of interest to a growing market. We see a, a rise in demand in cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're taking the cybersecurity um, that we have. We have kind of a core competence in that, and we're hoping to develop a bachelor's of science degree in cybersecurity management. Um, we also um, see the online mechanism as a continued growth area. That's where people are. The pandemic has forced a lot of folks into online education. It's something that they're um, like and are comfortable with. So um, I think a lot of what you will see in terms of growth areas for us will be in the online medium, uh, similar to the online accounting program. Mm-hmm. We launched an online business, business administration completion program, which they do their final two years online. Um, same thing with accounting, their final two years. We're looking at launching a supply chain management online completion program. Again, their final two years. Because we're the only university in the state of New York who has supply chain. Um, so it seems like a growth first entry to market kind of an opportunity for us. So you have to continue to, to grow in these unique programs for where the market is. 
identify where those are and move your 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 business in those directions. How do you find uh, like the online portion of it and and personally like and then I'm just going to go by kind of my experience. This was years ago mm-hmm. when you're sitting in a classroom. There's I feel there's less critical application of what you're doing because you're in a classroom and it's more of like you're hearing stuff you're you know lectures mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. you're taking it in and you're and I, like I, i'm someone i think a lot of people are learned by doing like yeah. they physically yep. have to go through the motions and i find that on like an online course your people almost have to think a little bit more for themselves because it's like hey i'm giving you this stuff but then you have to complete the task whether it's mm-hmm. online or going through some kind of case study or or um you know something to actually hands-on do the work i find that that and again, correct me if I'm wrong on this. I think like that would online would promote a little bit more um, self-starting, and but I feel like the in-person certainly allows a little bit more of the nuance. Like, hey, like I got a follow-up question on that Brian and like you or Doctor Neruther, like a follow-up question on a on something, and you could say, well, yeah, like instead of like going deep down this, I get like the kids understand this. Let me let me go on a little bit of tangent, mm-hmm. but maybe explain something mm-hmm. that they need a little bit more polishing on mm-hmm. so i find that the you can be a little bit more adjustable in person mm-hmm. but i find that online you it might force people to potentially do a little bit more hands-on work mm-hmm. um or i guess i call it like self self-starting but it's like hey you're a little bit more on your own so kind of think yeah. this through a little bit more yeah no you're exactly right you know um there are markets for both right there's there are there is still a continued strong market for students who want the the traditional on-campus residential education who they want the college experience they want to live on campus they want to get away from home mm-hmm. um, there's still a market for a large market for that um, and for those students you know learning in person is is better um, because it, it gives them that one-on-one interaction that they might need it also allows us as faculty to see social cues or interaction cues that give us an indication of okay and I, I i hear what they're saying but that's not what i'm reading through the body language so mm-hmm. it enables us to adapt the courses to where the students might be in terms of the educational learning outcomes of the course uh and there is more opportunity there can be more opportunity for hands-on in the classroom environment if that's built into the coursework um, online is much more self-driven you have to be someone who's willing, who's able to 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 manage your time. You're not going to have someone um, who can see that you're falling behind, um, unless you're not turning in work and they notice those things. You do have to be a little more of a self star. You have to be much more self motivated. Um, you have to be willing to um, learn um, on on the mechanisms for the course. So a lot of it is videos. A lot of it is oftentimes by the instructors. Uh, a lot of it is is, is self-paced reading uh, and is oftentimes guided problem solving. And that requires that you are self-motivated. It also requires that you um, have the ability to reach out when you need help. Yeah. And Do you find that, that students lack that, I'm assuming? It's, we see that more, I think, now than we have. And I think the pandemic may have, have, have been a little bit of a factor in that where we're so used now to being disengaged with personal interaction mm-hmm. that it's harder for for folks to come to and physically interact with you and to ask you questions do you think that's a little bit generational too i, I think so yeah. yeah yeah it is and you know with um um podcasts right mm-hmm. and uh and uh, all your social media 
um, has, has created that. And I think it creates a little lack of the ability for some to be able to interact socially. Well, I think it, for everything that's good with technology, there's always good and bad. And yep. I find that, um, and I'm guilty of it too. I think most people are, if they're on social media, like sometimes you use that as I'm bored, I'm going to scroll. I think people <laughs> use the idea that like, Hey, it's easier to text or message somebody than yep. it is to physically call them or that's go right. see them in person. And I think, mm-hmm. um, I still think I'm in that generation where that stuff really wasn't prevalent, mm-hmm. um, growing up and, yep. Um, like you take like Facebook. I didn't have Facebook until I went to college and yeah. I honestly didn't really <laughs> use Facebook. I think until, you know, I probably started to mingle more with, with, um, you know, females and friends and stuff like that, sure. you know, and you're, you know, it's, um, kind of growing your friend base there. But, right. um, I think realistically, like I think kids nowadays, like they hide behind their phones and they hide sure. behind And I think it's just, it's how they're brought up and it's not, a, not a bad thing. It's just mm-hmm. society and things change. And, yeah. um, like me personally, like I'm trying to use less of it mm-hmm. throughout the day and i have one of the um like one of my goals i had for the year was to read a certain amount of books mm-hmm. like like it could be and it could be listening it could right. be audi- audible but a lot of it was like physical books and yeah. the amount i don't know what the percentage wise is but like if i read like 10 books last year mm-hmm. i'm like almost to 50 right now so yeah. like i i really you know tried to take that mindless scrolling and the following and and i've really simplified a lot yeah. um and I feel like kids, they might eventually get to that point, but mm-hmm. I think at a certain point you get overwhelmed. Yeah, and you I know, agree. I think trying to talk to somebody is, is a good thing. Um, now, what about? I have, I have a theory after how I think learning is going to oh, change okay. slightly. The, the, the Galen theory. The Galen. Oh, right. the Galen theory. All right. That we'll do that after. The GT. Okay. The GT theory. I like that. Yeah. Um, so the uh, but going into like we've heard about. Um, Student debt. We've heard about the debt, you know, loan forgiveness. I, do you find that that? Because uh, I would say overall, Plattsburgh is a budget friend for a college purpose. It's a budget friendly place mm-hmm. to go. Yes. Um, I mean, that's certainly why I went. You know, yeah. my goal was to get out without student debt. Like that was yep. my my whole thing. Because yep. as a nerdy 17, 18 year old kid, I knew about interest and compound interest and all the <laughs> all that fun stuff. So um, I really tried to avoid it. But right. I guess what's your thoughts on like the student debt kind of? Uh, you know, I get it's in the news now, so mm-hmm. but you're obviously living it. So how do you think that mm-hmm. factors mm-hmm. in? Mm-hmm. Well, student debt is is certainly an, an issue um, because education is very very expensive, and mm-hmm. I think I think it's it's important that we as as higher education professionals examine ways in which we could reduce the cost to to folks looking at a higher education. Um, I think the the student debt. You know, whether it's a good thing or not, it's certainly good for those who will see the relief, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's not something you can argue with. Um, and so for those who are going to see the relief, um, it certainly is, is helpful to them. Um, but I do think that's that's the back end, end of the line solution, right? You, there's got to be, we've got to do more on the front end line solution. You know, why is, why is higher education so expensive? how are we able to reduce that the cost to students and the the suny system in itself is one of the 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 biggest values in education that exists if you take a look at how much students pay in terms of tuition um we're we're doing something right in terms of the ability to provide the education for students um 
so again, for those students, it's it's a good thing. I, I mean, I may have one or two two of my children who may qualify for that, and you know that that's okay with me. Um, but um, I understand both sides of it in terms of um, you know, well, you know, why you know why why am I paying for their you know um, their costs? You know, why am I having to spend my money on decisions that they made in terms of how they want to spend their money? Mm-hmm. So I can see that as well, um, but. Um, you know, we get, we have to take a look at ways that we can reduce the cost of education in its entirety. Yeah. It's kind of a, you know, obviously then it starts getting into the political aspect and then people mm-hmm. start to feel too political. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I look at, you know, you kind of, like I've, I've, I think I read something that the whole idea of these people are saying, like, I've been paying and I've been paying and I've been paying on this and I still owe about the same as I took out. Like, I'm just not making any dent in this yeah. and whatever it might be, maybe paying the minimum. When you look at, it's like, I mean, if you, I'll go back to houses. If you were to look at like, hey, I'm buying a house for 200000 Okay, mm-hmm. well, what? Let, and let's just say you had a 4% interest rate. Mm-hmm. Where is that going to be at the life of loan? How much money are you paying? Now, mm-hmm. if you look at, oh my God, I'm paying $425,000 for this $200,000 home. Like, that's how interest works. Mm-hmm. And it's basically giving you something up front that you can't afford now with mm-hmm. the idea that you can get it, but you, you pay the penalty in the form yeah. of interest. But when you look at most of these, it's like, it's set up that, if you go the full term, you're typically going to pay for 30 years. Right. And you see the whole amortization schedule. You see mm-hmm. every, you see all 360 months of payments. Yep. Yep. I find that at least what I was reading. And again, I don't know, you know, this could be right, could be wrong, but it was the idea of like this person sounded like there was like no one in sight to paying this down, which mm-hmm. seems crazy. And their idea was, it's not that I took out more than I could afford. It's not that they said that they felt that there was something wrong more so with the way that student, that, the student um, loan system works. And this is not a college, it's not an institution. This is more like a banking institution mm-hmm. about how they're doing mm-hmm. it. And unfortunately, right. when you look at, like I think there's a lot of value to college. Mm-hmm. I also think for a lot of students, my person, so I kind of want to go into the my theory and some stuff, but like, I think if you're going to get a degree and that degree is legitimately going to help you in some part of your career, you absolutely should. It's an investment in yourself. And again, was it Ben Franklin said the investment in yourself pays the biggest dividends. Like, yep. um, you should invest in yourself. You right. should pay money to make yourself better in all forms and everything you can do or all different facets of life. But if you're going to go get a degree that may not really amount to anything it's mm-hmm. a it's a degree you learn stuff but if it's not a practical thing mm-hmm. and i think every degree is practical but you have to have a level of marketing you have to have a level of business savvy you have to mm-hmm. have a level of uh go and get it kind of deal mm-hmm. um so you can turn any degree into a monetary or monetize it mm-hmm. um but i also feel like if your goal is to go to college and there's really not an end goal in sight and you're haphazardly going and you're young you don't know what you're doing and you're, you know just you're you know a lot, a lot of kids don't understand the mm-hmm. was uh, Warren Buffett says the eighth wonder of the world is compound interest but it works <laughs> negatively in certain spots um, of course. that if you you go into it and realize like I'm accumulating a ton of debt and I'm taking out a ton of loans sorry I'm accumulating debt and I'm going to get a degree that maybe only pays 70,000 a year yep. and then you realize like that's not a smart investment decision mm-hmm. it's an investment in yourself I get it um, so my theory aspect like number one, like don't go to you know Plattsburgh State makes way more sense than going out of state, and I'll use it because it's close. Like we'll say UVM, mm-hmm. you're paying out of state to go to UVM. I don't know what the, the dollar amount. I'm guessing you're paying two, at minimum two x, maybe three x more per mm-hmm. per year mm-hmm. to go. For, I'm saying a student in New York. I don't mm-hmm. know how Vermont State mm-hmm. colleges work, but um, where like you can go to Plattsburgh for probably a third of the cost, mm-hmm. and 
I don't know how true it is. Obviously, some bigger colleges, I do think there's value to the connection and the alumni and, and some stuff. And I think you do that. If you're smart, that's where a lot of the value is. Right. Knowledge base, I think you get an, intro, an entry-level knowledge, whether it's supply chain at Plattsburgh, whether it's supply chain at the school of 3-4-X, the knowledge you're getting is similar. Right. And I would say that it's very, like, could you have a couple maybe higher-end professors at certain colleges versus others? Potentially, but I think a lot of it falls on the students, how much you're retaining and what you do with that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, though, the only value that I could find at a bigger institution, more expensive institution, would potentially be the connections and the networking you make mm-hmm. with alumni and with the faculty and things like that. Am I, is there anything else you could think that would bridge that gap where you think would make, make sense to take out the extra debt load? Well, the, the only thing that would make sense, I think you're exactly right. Um, the other thing that would make sense is is kind of niche programs, right, or niche degrees. Mm-hmm. So engineering, for instance, right. If you're going to go into engineering, then it makes a lot of sense to go just to schools that have a good engineering program because that's where the recruitment occurs. Mm-hmm. So, so back to your 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 statement that you know really to to go, what are you paying for for a higher education? A lot of times it's access to networks and access to jobs and positions that recruiters are comfortable with, know the students at those institutions and are comfortable recruiting them. And that's where they go. So, you know, I see that with my own children. You know, I see my, my son, when my son goes to Clarkson and, um, and, and I cringe every time we have to, we have to cover a bill. Um, and we're trying to keep the student loans down to a minimum, but the value for him at that institution isn't necessarily that he's getting a better education than he might elsewhere, but it is the, the opportunities that Clarkson opens up in terms of the engineering field, right? And the positions that are available and the network that he can then create for himself. Um, some institutions, um, program rigor is a little bit more, right? And so there is some value to that in some of your, um, educational programs that you may spend a little bit more money for. They've got some, some world renowned individuals who you can, you can work under who people recognize and, and, and appreciate that. And, and because that becomes a factor in what you do. Um, but other than that, there really isn't much. Um, like I, well, it's kind of like a, it's like a sports analogy. Like, do you want to go play for a high level club team versus play like, you know, like mm-hmm. there's certain sports that are really good up here, but if mm-hmm. you want to go far, say in, Let's pick basketball. Mm-hmm. Maybe better go to prep school out in like mm-hmm. Boston or something mm-hmm. and learn and, and play mm-hmm. under a you know well known mm-hmm. coach and have access to UConn mm-hmm. and Boston College. And, mm-hmm. um, but so this is my this is my thought when I went to college ten mm-hmm. years ago hasn't changed, but I think it's evolved slightly with I think the way things might be going. I always looked at it. Your best bet, and I kind of kick myself on this is. I wish I would have maybe pressed a little bit more in high school to take a little bit more like cap kind of courses where you mm-hmm. get credit. I took a few yes. AP courses. Yep. My high school didn't really offer cap. It was mm-hmm. a smaller school. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something I wish I had mm-hmm. a little more access to because I think one, you save money and two, you get a little bit ahead. Right. Um, I personally think that gen eds at college are a waste of money overall in the sense that if you're going to go go to like Clinton Community College, get your basic stuff out of the way, transfer up to a, you know, a SUNY, uh, say mm-hmm. SUNY, but like a four year, get your bachelor's from a, mm-hmm. you know, a school and get a bachelor's. And then if you want to go from there to say a graduate program, use it as a stepping stone. So mm-hmm. really like you're minimizing your financial obligations, but you're still hitting your stepping stones and you're mm-hmm. still working on like 
like my mindset is like to go to UVM for four years and spend an absorbent amount of money for two years getting gen ed courses. Like, could you get your gen ed courses really cheap? Because you got to get them, get them cheap, and then eventually transition and, and then put your money in more of the graduate mm-hmm. program where your degree, I would think, based on everything you just said, yep. would potentially carry further and you'd still get in the mm-hmm. networking. But I don't think anybody's going to look at you and say, like, oh, you did freshman, sophomore year at Plattsburgh. Mm-hmm. You didn't do it at, like, you know, Columbia. No. And, yeah. Am I wrong on that? Or is that no, you're right. And, and it, I mean, also, it that sounds simplistic. But. No, no. It's, I think you're right on target because what universities are looking for, what organizations are looking for when they're hiring isn't you know, necessarily all of your degree. It's where your final degree is from. So what, what we do for our children uh, is just that. We actually uh, enroll them as a non-matriculated student in community college courses. Mm-hmm. And they do those Was in, this high, in high school. In high school, okay. yeah, because you can do that. Um, they'll gladly accept the, you know, and oftentimes you can get a reduced f- fee because they're high school students. Some some colleges, community colleges, do that, so you pay a much lower fee for a course. And what we have them do is just that: we have them take their kind of general level sciences, a general level math. We have them do a, a sociology course or a history course, so that we're we're getting those out of the way, so that when they get to college itself they can complete their degree in two and a half or three years at full college rate tuition. So you're saving that, that money. Um, um, and so that's a viable option for, for many. You know, some students and some individuals want that four-year residential college experience. Uh, and that's, that's a value to them. Um, it allows them to develop who they are as a person. It allows them to get a feel for who they are, to get an interest for what they like to do. Uh, it allows them to create a, a group of, of, of friends that they, they may have for life. Um, but it also allows them to create that group of folks who have similar interests that they can kind of progress through with and maybe network with to create a larger network when they graduate. So there is a desire and a need, I think, for those for that four-year experience. Um, but no, it's not for everybody. Like one one of like, and I say gen eds in the sense that a lot of the gen eds don't really amount to what you want to do, and I think there's there's a difference in the sense that it does allow you to expand your horizon and learn a bunch of stuff. That's great, and I think that that is a a portion of it, and I think there is value to that. Like I took I took intro to Canada, which I thought was fascinating. Mm -hmm. I did an anthropology course. Um, I really like sociology. Um, I don't. I don't remember if I took a psychology course. I know I would love psych- like I do like mm-hmm. psychology. I never took mm-hmm. a philosophy. I wish I could took a philosophy. Mm-hmm. But again, at eighteen, my interests were d- way different than they are right. now. Like if you said, "Hey, Galen, what would you major in, or what would you take classes in?" Mm-hmm. I would tweak a lot of what I took. Absolutely. I took actually I took guitar too because I was like playing at the time. I was like, That's kind of fun. Yeah. But so you do get to experience certain things. But mm-hmm. I think the way that my I'm going to call it the the. We we'll call it the, G, the Galen theory. You can call it GT. That's GT. People call it, it, it that nickname sounds, it Trombley. Better, but it that's, almost sounds like a muscle car. Or something, so yeah, G, right? yeah, GT. Mustang GT. Yeah, so what, um, so my, my my theory is how I think that things are going to start developing is that would at some point in time, like if you're a kid that goes to high school or goes to school, I think at a certain point in time when you go to say your your freshman year of high school, so you're 14, 15 years old, I think even though it's it's kind of that way in high school. It's kind of almost introducing like a gen ed style program there. And mm-hmm. the reason I say gen eds, because there's there was courses that I took in high school and then I went and took them in college and high school was way more, um, they challenged me way more than the college. Like some mm-hmm. of the college courses, I was like, this is, uh, like some are very good. Like some, right. like the anthropology and stuff I've never taken before. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is fascinating. But then like I took big 
English and I took science and I took bio and I took like some of these courses. I'm like, this is like, Mm -hmm. I learned this three years ago. Um, but is, I, I wonder if there's a way that like high school can be kind of changed around a little bit. And obviously this is at the state level where kids that can go in as a freshman, get a little bit more knowledge base than going through and just taking your main core subjects and then mm-hmm. advancing on on those mm-hmm. where could you offer like, you know, the anthropology and the psychology and the sociology and you, you, you know, the philosophy and the business courses and you really get people to take a mixture of everything mm-hmm. with the idea that by the time they get to the point that they're 18, that this might speed them up a couple years and say, listen, you're 18 now, you're graduating high school, but we want to try to give you a little bit more knowledge base of what you want to do going into college. And when you go to college, and I think that at 18, people have a better understanding whether they want to go to college, whether they want to have a trade school or whether they want to do, I'm going to call it like a specialty course, but like, you know, like my wife went for massage therapy. Like Mm -hmm. it was a, you know, a, a very good school. She went for it, but it was out of college. I went for real estate. It wasn't, you need a college degree. So there's certain things that people could get where it doesn't really require a college degree and it doesn't really require going to the trades and there's that middle ground. Um, and I do think all three are, are absolutely viable and important, but I think that kids at 18 and like when I, when I went in at 18, my idea, I had no clue what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So I was like, my natural progression, I think with a lot of kids my age was like, go to college. That mm-hmm. was just like, you're mm-hmm. going to go to college. And mm-hmm. if you didn't go to college, people looked like, I can't believe he's just getting a job or going to the military or mm-hmm. something where it wasn't like, you're going to go to college. And I feel like going to college was, um, not every kid, but I think a lot of kids use it as a social thing, a status mm-hmm. thing and mm-hmm. say like, I'm going to X school. I got into X school. Mm-hmm. But I think realistically at the end of the day, if kids are going in and saying, Hey, you're 18, which arguably is still a very young, um, sure. non-fully developed mind, mm-hmm. um, figure out what you want to do. And I think that it's very hard for kids to go in and I, and you kind of hope that by the end of the four years, they kind of have a little bit of a game plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some people do and some people don't. And I, I think as long as you kind of have hopefully some type of, Mo- I say aha moment, but a moment that points you in the right direction. I think that's a win. Um, but do you think that things might transition earlier where high school, those four years of high school are are geared a little bit more at defining what people have interest in, where maybe instead of declaring at college, like I'm going to go in and, and have a major, I'm going to like, you know, what's your major 18? And I'm like, I was undecided. Right. And then it went to business mm-hmm. and I was like, well, I don't know business. And then I'm like, Supply chain sounds cool. Mm-hmm. And I really only p- picked it because of a conversation. And then mm-hmm. like for me to pick my whole course based on a conversation, mm-hmm. and I think it's cool. I think it's a very cool industry. Um, but to pick that at 18 and put a lot of like obviously financial um, money invested, time investment into that versus saying, hey, maybe as like, a f- you know, when you don't really have a lot of skin in the game as mm-hmm. a freshman to senior, you can try a few more things and really try to polish what you're interested in. Mm-hmm. So when you go to college, it's like, what do you really like to do? I'm like, I like building stuff. I like science. I like math. I'm like, well, let's try to get you on a fast mm-hmm. pass to something that you have interest in mm-hmm. where you lessen the debt burden, but you also get kids more into their line of where they want to go. Yeah. No. And, and you know, part of college I think is, is just, is just that, you know, the hope is that in high school they are able to explore those opportunities with, with guidance counselors and get a general a gist for what might interest them. But really in, in college, part of the experience is, is just that. It's identifying who you are because oftentimes you don't, 
you know, and I even see it in my own children, they, they, they're, they, they're different. They, they are themselves now, you know, then they're different than they were when they were under the house because they're able to get out from us and, and, and be able to develop who they are as an individual. And part of college really is that is allowing them the opportunity, the independence to, to begin to figure out who it is that they are. And part of the gen ed process is enabling students and kind of requiring that they dabble in all of these different areas because that's what's going to, first of all, make them a little bit more well-rounded. Second, give them those experiences to help identify what might be of interest to them because they're able to, in most cases, pick those courses that they may want to take. Um, but then also through that process, identify what is what might truly be something that I'm interested in. And we hope to also be able to explore that with those students through all sorts of experiential learning outside the classroom with internship opportunities, co-op opportunities. We take many trips to different businesses in the area so they could see how different things work. So the experience is more than just the classroom experience that we try to develop through a, a, a kind of a four-year program. It is a kind of a holistic approach to developing this individual to who they are, who they want to be, um, and helping them find kind of life's fulfillment to, to at least the start of that. You know, what's the start of the journey that you're going to to be excited about? You know, I would hope that at, at some point in the in your educational journey, um, you realize several things that were not for Galen Trombley, mm -hmm. right? And that's a that's a part of what this whole process is. I mean, my my middle son started in civil engineering. He quickly realized he's not going to be a civil engineer. Mm -hmm. um, but he wouldn't have known that without the opportunity to try it. And that's, that's the experience, I think, that the, the college experience gives individuals. So I don't know if there will ever be that kind of synergy that you're thinking of. It was an interesting theory um, because I'm not so sure at even 16 or 17, you're even able to assess what it is that you really want to do for the rest of your life. Same thing with 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds. Yeah, and, and I guess the thought process behind it was if if you're telling... Because I, I think, realistically, a kid at 14 to a kid at 18, 19, like they, they definitely grow up. But I think sure. in the grand scheme of of life, you could still kind of funnel them in like, you don't really know what you're, you want to do. Right. And, yeah. and not in a bad way. I mean, there's kids that are 30 that don't know. There's people that are 40 mm -hmm. that still mm -hmm. trying to, you know, change jobs yeah. and, and careers. But I think that the idea is that to me, it felt from like ninth grade through arguably sophomore year of college. So it's about six years. And I would even throw junior high because it's kind of the same a lot of it felt very repetitive where it's like, mm. I, you know, you're taking different sciences, you're taking, yep. but you're taking a science and you're taking a math and mm -hmm. you're doing history. Mm -hmm. And I think what I'd like to see, and again, maybe I was more of a small school and some maybe bigger schools have access to this. And I know like Plattsburgh, you know, they have a few more things, but like they have like more of like the STEM courses and robotics yeah. and they have, yeah. you know, but then you start going to like, which is crazy. My senior year, I took as an elective psychology and sociology and I absolutely loved them. I had no exposure to any of them prior. Um, it was also the first time. Now I'm eight. I remember this like clear as day. I think I was. It was my senior year, sometime during my senior year, and the teacher at the time who was teaching this this course, I think it was sociology. It was the first time in my life I had heard about retirement plans. I'd heard about life insurance. Mm -hmm. I had heard about. So yeah. like that's another thing. It's like you go in at 18, and I'm like, are retired? What's a, a Roth IRA? What's that? Mm -hmm. Like interest? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. and then I started and. And I would say I, I dove into that stuff early on with like reading about, 
you know, money and finances as a high school student. And it interests, it still interests me, but I think that, you know, I wish that more of the life aspect was inter- intertwined or integrated mm-hmm. earlier in mm-hmm. the kids, not 18. Like, mm-hmm. can you start dabbling in that 13, 14, 15, mm-hmm. yeah. and then allow us to kind of make the connection with going into, because again, I think college, for the reasons you mentioned, the, the amount of independence and the amount of like self-growth that kids have in college, I think yeah. it's hard to replicate. It's like it's like homeschooling a child mm-hmm. versus going to a public school. Right. I have nothing against homeschooling. I think some kids do really good, but you do miss a lot of social aspects and you mm-hmm. miss a lot of uh, growing pains that kids in a public school system mm-hmm. or any, I mean, I say it could be a private school, but you're still going with the idea that you're with peers. Mm-hmm. You're navigating just like the... You know the emotions of other kids. You're mm-hmm. having your emotions and like the zits and the you mm-hmm. know and and you know bad days and good days and all these crazy things. But I think that it polishes the student in the sense that they get a better understanding of themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lifelong journey. I'm mm-hmm. still learning stuff about myself, and I'm sure, sure you are too. And of course, yeah. And many times I look and, and there are things <laughs> I still don't like about myself, but that's so be it. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's all good. And um, no, did I just say that I love everything about myself. Kim. That's good. Po- positive. The haircut's great. We like it. So, um, <laughs> Thank you. but I, I think, um, that, that was just, it was more the idea of like trying to go through, because when you talk about college, like, I remember doing my internship, and I went there and I did it. And, and where was the gym? I, I don't. Think um, you did it. Uh, oh, to think of the what right. an experience, huh? I'm trying to, yeah. yeah. Well, I know where it was. I'm trying to think of the name. Now. I think it was Shambex when I did it. Okay, yeah, yeah. But yeah. they've changed to the Swarovski, they and I think it might now. be something different now. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I remember going, and there, a couple things with that experience was number one, like I think the overall arching aspect of it, and I think it really comes down to, you know. A mixture of myself, a mixture of, mm-hmm. of the people. People were nice. I felt like my hope was I was going to maybe be challenged more in yeah. certain aspects. Yeah. Um, but I also think that a portion of it allowed me to realize, like, I really don't. And, and, and again, this was one experience at one place. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's a bad company. But the experience was like. It's like nine to five, kind of cubicle, kind of yep. life, and it just it wasn't for not me. for you. Yep. And it wasn't the work. It wasn't. It was just more of like the the environment. In the environment, meaning nine to five, sitting at a desk, mm-hmm. like at a computer. I just it wasn't like I wanted to be out and about doing more creative stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, now, granted, like there's some things logistically with supply chain because I love the concept of it. Mm-hmm. I love the, the I love the strategy. I love sure. the you know the operational aspect, um, and I feel that. Obviously, you can take those that knowledge base and you can put it in different environments. Sure. And and I think that, but at the time, it was a turnoff for me personally, and I just got out of it and never went back and pursued it. Mm-hmm. I think that, and, and some stuff, like I said, I think everything happens for a reason. So maybe there's a good reason that that happened. And like, you know mm-hmm. what, maybe there's a reason we didn't want you to fall in love with this because- It's but, not where you are. Yeah. But you can still take the knowledge base that you had- mm-hmm. Um, and do I remember all the just in time and the, the lean Sigma six and all this? Don't, don't tell me you didn't. So, I mean, no, no, I actually read it every night before bed. Oh, so I just, sure I want to keep brushing up on you it. You still have my lecture notes, right? I, I, you actually know what's funny. I probably do. Oh, okay. My parents' house. I probably haven't grabbed it in years, but they're probably still there. Um, yeah, they're probably going to sell them. Yeah. 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 Especially when I make it big in the supply chain world, you know, they, but, yeah. but I think yeah. that a lot of. A lot of the stuff, though, like I would love to go back through some of those notes because I have a little bit more context and yeah. how it would apply to my life. That's right. Because the idea of logistics and efficiencies and, and when you start talking about the, the practical use of some of this knowledge, like it's everywhere. You find it everywhere. Yeah. And I think that that's something that I really took at, you know, that I think I took away from it was it wasn't a career choice for me, but the knowledge base 
could could complement something else mm-hmm. I do in life. Yep. So I did get that from college, which I thought was great. Right, and and you know that's that's part of that. And you know the other thing about college we sometimes forget is that it, it attempts to and and oftentimes successfully does so. It teaches the the critical reasoning and critical thinking skills. You know the ability to to take information and to to do something with it so that you can ultimately make a decision that is a a good decision. Oftentimes you don't make the best decisions, but the critical thinking component is often an overlooked outcome of of a college education. Um, And that's how we function as a society, right? The ability for us to make these critical decisions is kind of what separates us as humans from kind of all the rest of the the entities uh, on earth. And so the ability to to foster that and for for people to learn how to do that and to do that well um, becomes an important part of the educational process. And so the subject matter sometimes for students like yourself I means saying that ah, wasn't the greatest thing, but there's other things too that might be, might come along with that in terms of the ability to think critically, mm-hmm. or the fact that you understand different cultures a little bit allows you to understand certain situations in life when dealing with people, mm-hmm. or your sociology course, you know, it may have given you the foundation to interact better with the clients that you interact with now, but we just aren't able to make that direct connection back to those. So there's a lot of those indirect connections that we we aren't able to make that actually create an individual for who is better for society and better at what they do. Oh, well, I think, I mean, just Plattsburgh State, which is, and I don't know the stats on this, but I think one of the biggest things that you mentioned was meeting different people like i grew up in the north country i mm-hmm. you know i went to school mm-hmm. here went to college mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. and naturally when you grow up you see other local people in the area and i've lived by the time i went to college i'd been living here 18 years mm-hmm. i went on campus and it felt like a different world it is yes and I it's crazy you. because it i it took me 13 minutes from door to door from mm-hmm. my house to the, the campus mm-hmm. and the amount of international students, yep. the amount of students from arguably the bit, one of the busiest cities in the world, New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had a lot of people, I mean, different parts of the state, Long Island, mm-hmm. Rochester, Buffalo, mm-hmm. the capital region. Yep. But when you, when you saw the amount of international students, you saw a lot of kids from the city and you saw, like, when you start to realize like, it, it's great, but like, yeah. it's a total, like it's a culture shock for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I found that, that that was one of the coolest experiences to like sit down. And I had a couple of students that I worked on with projects and it's like, and we've actually had a couple of interns here mm-hmm. that have worked with us and, uh, international students. Yep. And it's amazing. Like, um, we had one girl that was, uh, interning with us a couple years ago. It was before the pandemic. And she was I absolutely loved her. She was great. And I think she was from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that girl was a sponge. Like yeah. she just wanted to learn. Yeah. And I, I found it was cool because you learn customs and different things from That's her. Right. I asked her questions about, I've never been to Vietnam. Like what's yeah. it like? And yeah. you know, different things. And how do you like this and areas? And she loves the area and she mm-hmm. loved everything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found that even in college or like there, the coolest thing about Plattsburgh, and I think this, this might be a lot of colleges, but it really takes what you've known, that melting pot just throws you in a culture mm-hmm. of, so, or like a, Cult, a multi-dimensional culture of mm-hmm. all these different people and i think that's one of the cool things because you talk about like learning yeah. how to talk to people like talking yeah. to someone from the city that's never really been in a rural area or someone from a warmer climate coming into the winter for the mm-hmm. first time that's right you know and and, and it's funny when you see the reactions but then they have different you know 
they have different life experiences that they end up telling you about or they influence you a certain way. And I think that you can't replicate that, at least locally. There's no other place that you can replicate that but the college. I agree. You know, and and one of the the best experiences I've had probably in my life was, um, oh my gosh, five or six years ago, we were able to go to um, China. And uh, we were there for about six to seven weeks. And I was able to take the entire family with me. So the three kids and my wife and my mother-in-law came along. And I spent about three and a half weeks teaching at Ningbao University. Um, but then we spent the last two weeks just touring China. Yeah. And we went to Beijing. We went to Shanghai. We went to Xi'an. We went to Chengdu. That's got the Panda Reserve. And just watching my children grow in cultural awareness, watching myself grow in cultural awareness, um, was a phenomenal thing. Um, and the, the faculty would take us every weekend to someplace different. So they would take us berry picking. They had these berries that they just loved. And I mean, they would be climbing these trees and the, the faculty member would be no ladder up the top, grabbing <laughs> the ones at the top to bring us the sweetest ones. And, um, you know, we went down to the, the cultural center of some of these cities, the old town, where you would see some of the older folks just, you know, someone was playing an instrument. They were dancing in the streets to the to the, to the the Chinese music. And just being able to see that culture opened up my eyes, my wife's eyes, our entire family's and my children's eyes to what it means to embrace a new culture and acceptance of the differences and that the differences are really cool. You know, yeah. it's like, wow, that is so neat, you know, and... um and you get some of that at, at SUNY Plasburg because we have such a geographically diverse student body. And in the School of Business, we have a very geographically diverse faculty. Yeah. Yep. I think, oh uh, my gosh, last look, I think we have faculty from 14 different countries around the world. And, and they bring that to the classroom. It's amazing to me. And they, they also make their their typical cuisine for our potlucks. Gotta love it. <laughs> I, uh, so I had Jason Lee on the podcast. Oh, he's, a, he's still there. Yeah. And, and Jason, so Jason was one of my favorite professors I've ever had. Yep. He showed up, was like, I never missed a beat. This mm-hmm. guy was, he's never had a bad day, I think ever. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I learned about his background, like mm-hmm. he was in the military. I, uh, I know. The Taiwan military, right? Yes. And, yep. and you started to hear the background and like, mm-hmm. for a guy that I would say had a way more difficult life than most people I know. In the sense, difficult in the sense that you were like on an island in like the Southeast Asia, like military battle or something. Yep. And he's using his brain to like mm-hmm. work through problems. And he, he kind of puts like, it's fun to see him because he puts life in perspective. He's so happy all the time. That's right. And and the, I, it's like, he's almost like, yeah, it's worse than being up here in the winter. It's not a bad <laughs> deal. And But his enthusiasm yep. and arguably one of the smartest people I've ever met in my mm-hmm. life. I agree. I was going to say, you, you see him way more than I mm-hmm. do, but mm-hmm. Jason is a wealth of knowledge yeah. and his brain just works at a deeper level. Yeah. He is the new accounting department chair. Oh, he took awesome. over this year from Dr. Gabriel, who's still there, but Dr. Gabriel has been the accounting department chair for like 27 years. And, and I took so. one class from Dr. Gabriel and he was definitely a very memorable teacher too. That's right. He was very good. Yeah. Um, but you, I think you realize when you listen to the stories and you listen to the lies of these folks, how our, our lives are so different over here um, in terms of um, what we have access to and in terms of um, how our lives tend not to be quite as difficult um, as, as some of the, the folks who were, who were raised in, in some of these other countries. 
So it gives you a whole, whole new appreciation, um, empathy for what different cultures have gone through. And I think that helps build you up as an individual, um, makes you a better person and you're able to empathize and understand, uh, and, um, just show more compassion. And I think we need more of that yeah. in society today. No, I think, and, uh, I mean, I just, like I said, I, I can't say enough good things about Jason. He, he was, uh, he, his story blew me away cause yeah. he's, he's, a he's an interesting guy and, and mm-hmm. um, but again, he's very, very passionate. And I just, I remember him and, and Dr. Gabriel was the same way. Like they went above, uh, above and beyond yeah. for the students. And I remember yeah. like, if you had a question, you brought it up and they, they're like, how much time do you need? Cause I'm going to make sure you get this <laughs> and, right. in a good way. Like I want to make yeah. sure that you understand this. And they had so much passion for, I mean, it was accounting, but they had so much passion for it and the numbers. Right. And, and, and the other thing I've been reading yeah. a lot about learning about is the idea of, uh, like, the one the book I'm reading right now is all about like subtracting in the sense that we want to add as society we want to add 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 and mm-hmm. I said a lot of the, a lot of this the idea of like perfection or everything mm-hmm. comes from simplicity that if you really understand um, and I heard this this idea is like if you can't explain a very complex problem to a young child you don't really know it mm-hmm. and the and and I feel like Jason could take a very high level accounting and say like, let's do a lemonade stand right now. Mm-hmm. And he would make it so simplistic that you would understand <laughs> it. But I think his awareness of that, t- of yeah. that topic is, is so deep that yep. he's gone through all the fluff, all mm-hmm. the, all the crazy up, you know, waste almost yep. too high above normal thinking. It could strip it down to basics. Yeah. And I think that that's a fascinating thing. And there's not many people that can really do it at a level. And yeah. he's someone I feel that can. Yeah. You mentioned lemonade stand. Did you, did I have you for the supply chain management course? I feel like we did something. Okay. Bad. And and the very first two days we did a lemonade stand. I feel like we did. Yes, yes, that's correct. And we broke the supply chain down into the very simplistic version of a lemonade stand. The sugar and the lemons and the that's, water. That's exactly right. I, yeah. It's been yeah. years, but yeah. I, I, but I'm I, like, wait a minute, you remembering that? Now yeah. now that you're saying it, I think yeah. I'm like, I think we did do the lemonade stand. But there's so much power in just like that simplistic It, it absolutely is. And and it really is a very simplistic depiction of what really happens in, in reality. And if we the principle keep it simple, it's so real. You know, if mm-hmm. we if we can look back and 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 uh, try to do that, I mean that that's what, I agree. What what's your hope with um, like where where do you hope that Plattsburgh State goes, or where do you hope that the college itself can, or the, even just the School of Business Economics, where where do you think that transition or future growth or evolution is going to take you? Yeah, well, you know, I think um, I can speak for the School of Business a little bit more than I can for the university in general, um, but I think. For the School of Business, I think it's important that we continue to to take a look at successful students. And we're successful when we see students who graduate who are successful. So as as any institution, you know, we would like to continue to see, no matter how many students we have, those students go out and be successful. Um, And not only successful in their businesses, but also successful in impacting society. Because a big part of, I think, what we want to do as a school of business is only develop you to be future business leaders, but also develop you to have a strong positive societal impact through your business disciplines. So it's creating individuals um, who are successful, who give back, um, and also are looking out for the larger positive impact for society. That's, I think, from a school of business, what my hope is. And I hope that that's where we are able to take our school of business 
develop our students in such a way that they're great at business, they understand the importance of business in society, how important it is for us to impact the lives of people no matter where they are, and how do we go about doing that in a positive manner? I think that would be important for us. What do you think... um... What do you think of some characteristics are of like a student where you're like, hey, we think that this student embodies or these characteristics, like we have a good feeling that this student's going to be able to carry on our, what we hope that they leave Plastic State with? Well, first, all the things that Galen was not. No. <laughs> you can be, hey, be no, honest, Brian. No, be no, honest. No, no, no. Um, well, I, I think you want a student, uh, you want someone who's, who's passionate about what they do. You want, you want a student to find what they love to do. So you want a student who is passionate. You want someone who is energetic. You want someone who is going to go out there and get things done. Um, but you also want someone who's going to do that uh, in the appropriate way. So you want someone who has, has confidence. You want someone who has the ability to network and to get along well with, with everybody. And you want someone who's going to be able to lead. Right? And at least show those initial qualities of what it means to be a leader. Right, Someone who can... You know, I often at times take a look at what I do as as um, as a dean and um, as a leader, and a lot of what I do is trying to pick people up and move them forward. So you need leaders who can do that, right? Who understand what motivates their employee base, so that you can convince them that these are the things that are going to make this school of business better, and have them buy into that. And I think you need folks who have the ability to make people aware and move in a certain direction that's going to make the business thrive. Um, so I think, I think that's what I'd look for. Ultimately, I look for someone who graduates who's going to have a fulfilled life. Who's going to be happy at what they do. They're going to they're gonna make an impact. They're going to have a wonderful family if that's what they decide to do. They're going to raise wonderful children um, and just be part of society in improving business. Um, do you... Do you find a lot of students try to stay in contact with Plattsburgh when they leave? Or do you have a, a handful that do? Certainly. We sure, okay. we sure do. You know, those um, those who have been successful do. Those who have had good experiences typically will come back. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we reach out on LinkedIn. We have our alumni office who does a good job with that. And we have some faculty who do a wonderful job at retaining those alumni relationships. Um, Dr. Christofferson, Dr. Gaber, Dr. Lee. Um, Dr. Nancy Church, Dr. Lise Rue, um, folks who've been at SUNY Plattsburgh for a long period of time. Okay, I had every single one you just mentioned. Yeah, I'm sure you yeah. have. <laughs> um, who develop in their students a sense of belonging and a sense of success. And they know that a part of their success has come from these individuals. And so they're willing to give back and keep in touch, come back to campus, visit with our students, talk to our students about their successes, um, how they can be successful what are some of the things that they can they can bring to the tables to for the students to be successful um so we do have a lot and and we love when we hear from from our graduates and we love them to come back we even have a program alumni in the classroom experience where there's funding for us to bring to bring folks back to campus where we help cover the cost of travel and lodging so they can spend a day or two on campus it's a phenomenal program we had very much success with that well, I, always, I just think it's important, too, when you have, um, you know, especially students that are not too far removed from the, the students that are currently mm-hmm. there, because mm-hmm. then it's like, well, I graduated five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever, but yep. they can see, mm-hmm. 
I think I think at that age, anybody that's at a certain age, you just think they're old, and then you realize like at certain. <laughs> well, I mean, but you, then you look at like when you know at eighteen, I thought you were probably older when I was eighteen than I think you are now. Yeah, probably. Because you put, I'm about as much older then as I was now. But that's uh, right. still got me right. You're, yeah. still, you're still pulling ahead. But it, when, when you look at that, like when you go to college, you just think like you're still young. You're like that's a professor, that's, right. that's a teacher, and then mm-hmm. as you grow older, you become more peers. And even though there's a the age gap, still the same. That's right. It just you have a different perspective. But I think even kids realizing like that person's only like 27. Mm-hmm. They graduated five six years ago, yeah. but they're doing cool stuff. And I'm like, I'm not that far behind them. And yeah. We're still talking about the same stuff. And I think for some students, that's um, whether that's motivation or whether that's kind of an eye opener of like, wow, this is all the stuff that you you went from Plattsburgh and now you're doing all this. That's yeah, awesome. And I yeah. think I always love seeing, um, you know, I get like the alumni magazines and you read through like some of the things that people are doing. Like, oh, this guy from class of 97 mm-hmm. or class of, you know, 2008. Yeah. And you're like, wow, that's yeah. they're, they're doing incredible stuff. Where, where are mm-hmm. they? And, um, yeah. and uh, I find that's always, it's, it's really cool to see people that are in Plattsburgh or even sometimes, you, you know, um, things kind of tie back to Plattsburgh somehow. And mm-hmm. I think that's always exciting. Yeah. Um, the other question I was going to ask you, which I don't know how long you've been doing this, but you're a deacon also, right? I am. Yes. So how long have you been doing that? Oh, uh, been ordained now about uh, nine years. Okay. Cause mm-hmm. I, and again, I didn't know you probably more beyond college back yep. then, but mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so what, what drove you to become a deacon and, and what's that entail in your life? Well, um, you know, it's it's all about your what drove me to be a deacon was my relationship, of course, with uh, with Christ, right? Mm-hmm. And so, wanting to know Him more and wanting to kind of emulate a life that is a Christian life, um, and a big part of that was to to kind of be a role model for for my children, um, and um, and you know, just really becoming a better person, I think, is a big part of that, um, and so. Um, but there's a lot of training that goes into that. There's like six years of, of effort that goes into to finally being ordained a deacon. You've got uh, uh, two years of like ministry programs and then four years of diaconal or, of, of programs and a lot of paper writing, a lot of academic work. Um, but I think um, driving to get to know Christ better, but then giving back to the church, right? Being able to provide service to the church, uh, to those who have the same faith. Um, and to help provide them avenues to get to know to know Christ better, and again to help them lead their lives better. And you're at St. John or St. Peter's? Um, I, well, um, I was at St. John's, but now it's um, the, the the city is a single church, a single shingle okay. parish. So it's Holy Cross Parish, okay. and then so I'm at the Holy Cross Parish, and that parish has four worship sites. So it's St. Peter's, St. John's, Our Lady of Victory, and the Newman Center. Oh yeah, Newman Center. Mm-hmm. Our, wait, our oh, Our Lady of Victory. Yes, down in South Catherine. That's correct. Yeah. They, they, there's oh yeah, it's right by the. Yes, I know exactly where it is now. Yep, and that's where they have where the apartments are now. But it used to be the, the where the convent was. Convent, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. And they have um, that area because of the school. That's that's no longer a school, but still exists in the the back of that area. That's where our um, thrift store are. It's where our food shelf is. And, and it's where uh, the gym is, that mm-hmm. area? That's correct. Yeah. Yep. And so that's where we provide kind of our outreach to the community. Have you always been a spiritual person when you were younger? Or? No. <laughs> so when, when, did, when did all that start, though, for you? Um, you know, uh, I, I was a typical person. You know, my parents made me go to school and, and take church until I was confirmed. And um, then I kind of steered away. Didn't really enter a college at all. It wasn't my thing. Um but I think for me, it was it was 
it, it wasn't when I had children. It was that that the, when we had children, the desire to instill our faith in them, mm-hmm. which started that process for me. And then I realized, you know, I don't know much about my faith. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm here trying to educate my children in this faith, and I know very little about it. Um, even though I was raised that way, um, like most folks, it's, you know, if you don't, you know, you just, unless you work at it, you don't know much about your faith. So I just want to learn more about my faith. And so I just started doing classes and one thing led to another and um, you identify where your strengths are as, as an individual. And um, that kind of led through that whole process. So like, uh, so I grew up in, in the Catholic church and I, you know, mm-hmm. um, baptized i think it was a week old when i was baptized and mm-hmm. confirmation mm-hmm. first communion confirmation mm-hmm. um and i stopped i stopped really going to, and i was one of those kids i went to church every sunday mm-hmm. growing up um typical like getting dragged to church by mom and dad and it was mm-hmm. like, oh, I didn't, like i want to not go it's a sunday <laughs> i want to like do something else and yeah. he always worked around it and, like mm-hmm. i'm spending the night at the, my friend's house i gotta leave in the morning and go to church like yeah. so yeah. i never um, I never really felt as a kid that I got much out of it. Um, I did find that it was relaxing. And mm-hmm. this, again, I'm talking like, you know, all the way up to basically 18 years old. Mm-hmm. I found it was like, it was quiet. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't really get much out of the homilies or this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or anything like that. But I, you know, you sat and you mm-hmm. relaxed and daydreamed and did everything else and counted all this, all the, <laughs> you know, boards up the wall and everything else. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I do find, and I've, I really don't go to church anymore, but mm-hmm. what I found is um, I always found that the church was great because it was a sense of community for a lot of people. I mean, right. there was a faith aspect, but I think there's the communal aspect, community Absolutely. aspect, which is massive because mm-hmm. we're social creatures, you know, mm-hmm. and you want to have that connectivity and you want to have a group of like-minded people. Um, what I found, though, is in time, I actually feel I'm more spiritual now than I was then whether I don't go and practice at a church but I find that I'm much more aware and in tune with myself and you know I really enjoy mm-hmm. you know thinking about stuff and, and and trying to I've always felt like following like the golden rule aspect you mm-hmm. know and and I found mm-hmm. that that has always been like my what it was like creed or way of living because mm-hmm. I always just try to be nice and I try like you said you try mm-hmm. to you know, everybody's different. You accept people and, you know, mm-hmm. you, you kind of, you can learn from people. Don't mm-hmm. be judgmental. Like we're all, right. we're all going through stuff. We all have our own lives sure. and we all have our own problems. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that a lot of it is just being, um, you know, re- really being um, non-judgmental, but being fair to people and giving mm-hmm. people grace and giving yourself grace and mm-hmm. realizing like life's hard. Like yeah. life is very hard. And I think yeah. people are trying to do the best they can and whatever mm-hmm. they can. And I think by helping people versus trying to tear them down, I always look at that, which is the Ten Commandments and a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, um, different um, religions kind of try to preach something similar of, mm-hmm. of that. And I think I've been able to utilize that in my life in the way I need it. And like, mm-hmm. you know, God and everything else, like I do believe there's higher power than mm-hmm. just strictly things happen. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's, and again, I know there's science and religion, that kind of thing, but I'm like, there, there's... Like, I like space, and I like, like, when you start really looking at, and you go in, like, the grand thing of the universe and down the space and everything else, I'm like, and I don't know, I'm not a scientist, but I'm like, you, so all this stuff happened with a some type of energy, Big Bang, mm-hmm. and, and I think that that happened, absolutely, but mm-hmm. I also think, I'm like, everything that we see has happened from energy that just happened, and mm-hmm. then it's grown into what we see now, and it could, it certainly could, but it's mm-hmm. like, I, I feel like whether it's karma, whether it's that intuition, whether it's sixth sense, like I feel like, you know, people talk about guardian angels. I think that things happen for a reason, but I think there's a lot of closeness things like 
how did I know that was going to happen? Or mm-hmm. how did this not happen? Or how would, how did I meet like your, your spouse? Like, how mm-hmm. did I somehow meet my wife at the time? We always joke, like there's a little bit of an age gap between us. Like had we met in college or had mm-hmm. we met like in our early twenties, we never would have been together. Right. We met at the right time, right place, right part of life that it, it merged together and we got married and have three kids and it's, it's awesome. And I think, you know, when you look at a lot of these, um, ways that people intertwine in life and like you visiting China and you met someone there and you met people mm-hmm. at college and you somehow got back up to Plattsburgh from mm-hmm. Indiana and like how, how the world and how your story kind of intertwines. Like, I really believe that the, like our, like our lives or whatever is like, whether they call it predetermined, but I think things are supposed to happen for a reason. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I've, I've always believed that. And I, I still do that. Like there's too many, there's too many coincidences and too many things that happen in life that I'm like, this isn't just randomized. I feel mm-hmm. like there's some level of, um, and I don't, again, I don't want to, you know, I don't know enough about the, the higher power aspect, but I feel like there is. Yeah. I think, you know, a couple, a couple things, um, you know, um, I think what religion does for us is it allows us to make Christian decisions. And it's those Christians' decisions that if we continue to make over time is what gives us the grace that leads us to where we are in life. Not necessarily predetermined, but it allows us to make those decisions because if we continue to make the good Christian decisions, then our lives will follow to where Christ wants them to go. When we begin to make decisions that may be not, maybe not good decisions, then our life deviates from that. And it's not necessarily predetermined. It's just those decisions that we make are what impacts how our life turns out. And so what religion does is it gives us the foundation so that we understand what Christ and what God wants us to do so that we can continue to make those good Christian decisions that lead us to that life of grace. Um, part of that, you know, you talked about the, the Big Bang, um, you know, it, the Big Bang could could simply be God's mechanism for creating the earth. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's you know, it's it doesn't it's not a separate thing. It's it doesn't mean it's it's a science based versus religion based. There's, you know, that something as you mentioned had to start that process, right? And some something had to be that first starter, that first mover. You know, what is that? You know, we consider that to be God. You know, somebody had to do something to start this whole universal process it just can't start you know it's laws of physics you just can't start without something acting on it mm-hmm. so something has to be that first actor and that's what we consider to be god and then everything else that happens from there is god's will for how the earth was created or for how things occur um the energy for that that bang um was was god's doing you know that's how it was created and so when we think about this idea that there has to be the separation of religion and science. No, not at all. They actually work together one, one on one. I, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. And I think that the divide yeah. is kind of silly. Like I think there's a, absolutely there's, yeah. the, it's like a, it's like a, um, it's like a dance. Like they're, yeah. they're working in harmony all the time. And I, I mean, again, I've, I've seen three humans born in my lifetime and I'm like, if you don't think there's some like miraculous <laughs> event that happens yeah. with just childbirth, yeah. like I think it's, I mean, yeah. think about how you develop, like right. you get sperm and an egg, but like, what do they actually turn into? I mean, mm-hmm. you, me, any person you've ever seen, like all, everything that happens, happens like that. I mean, it's just incredible that like the, what do you want to call it? The evolution or you want to call it the, mm-hmm. the, the actual science of how that happens. But it's like, 
and again, is it something that we just can't explain? So we just lean on like a spirituality part, but I think that they go such hand in hand. And I love the I love the uh, intertwi- interconnectedness of them. Yeah. Um, it makes for good dis- discussion, but yeah. I also think I, I really think at the end of the day, like you said, Christian values. I think as long as people are living kind of a virtuous life that they want to, you know, and they're trying to teach it too. They're trying mm-hmm. to instill, in, you know, the next generation. You have children. You're trying to, you know, life's hard. Parenting's hard. You try your best, and we're we're not perfect, but we. You know, I really think that people try the best they can, mm-hmm. you know, and their intentions are good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and even people that aren't good people or maybe make decisions that we would universally say weren't good decisions. Mm-hmm. I think everybody in life's needed to kind of turn the, the, t- mm-hmm. the you know, the, the wheel of time, you mm-hmm. know, that they're there for a reason too, good, mm-hmm. bad, whatever. And, you know, it's, you know, I, I it's, it's just, it's, it's a very, uh, there's a lot to it. And obviously we're, we're you know, kind of just checking in on the, how you got into it. But, mm-hmm. and, and I guess the, the last thing just cause of time, but like as a deacon, like what's your responsibilities as a deacon? How does that differ from a priest? How does that, um, and you know, obviously you can go higher up like the, you know, the Bishop and the Cardinals mm-hmm. and things, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you know, we could be looking at, mm-hmm. I know maybe card a Bishop or Cardinals far off for what you want to do. Oh, I, I can't. I was going to say merit um, and stuff. I know there's different rules there, I'm, but like, I'm as far as I could go. <laughs> so, so what's, what's a deacon and a priest? Like what's the difference in, I guess, responsibilities mm-hmm. or, um, well, a deacon is a ministry of peer service. So my uh, my ministry, and the unique thing about a diaconal ministry is I've I've lived the, the life, I've lived the married life, I have raised children, I have a job. Um, I understand um, those aspects of life, um, and I bring those experiences to the table when I minister. And that is of, of can be of extreme value for, for many because I have those those kind of real life experiences, and that's the wonderful thing from my experience about being able to minister um, because I have the same experiences as everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the a priest is um, is in, is kind of in charge of the spiritual formation of of where he's where he's at, um, and so. Uh, the main differences between a priest and a deacon, um, the, the first main difference is what they're there for, right? I'm there for service. A priest is there for the spiritual and the souls of the folks within within his church. Um, a deacon is not able to perform certain sacraments, so we can't we cannot do a mass because we can't consecrate the the hosts. Um, we're not able to hear. Um, Confessions, because in the Bible those are reserved exclusively for priests. Um, we're not also not able to give the sacrament of the of last rites, because also associated with that is oftentimes uh, reconciliation. So we aren't able to do that. So there are those those fundamental sacramental things that a priest can do, um, and rightfully should do, um, because Christ has, has specifically given those sacraments to to that particular. Um, aspect of the church to the priests um and so um so that's that's the kind of the primary difference it's kind of hard to explain um to, to to some extent um the fact that um we're pretty much what i do is service what i what i do for right now for the city parishes is i um i do um of course I, I go to mass every week i do preach homilies once a month um, and i do the sacramental prep work so i help couples um, through the baptismal process through the marriage process and uh, at times through the annulment process so so you can you can give a homily yes so and then you said you do it once a month but you can do the homily mm-hmm. um you can't 
you can't, um, I'm going to probably get the terms wrong, but like the Eucharist, you can't like bless that, but you can still give it. I guess, okay, we are, we're called ordinary ministers, so we can distribute the communion. Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then I think I actually did that before. I wasn't you could thinking. do that. You could be an extraordinary minister of the Eucharist. Yep. I, f- I feel like I did that after my confirmation in high school. Very possible. Wine and, and, the, and the bread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and then um, you you can't perform first communion or confirmation. You can do the prep work kind of leading up to it, but you can't do the actual ceremony. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. And yeah. then confirmation is typically done by the bishop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I remember mm-hmm. the bishop, the he priest can, does first communion. Yeah. He can delegate that to a priest if he's not able to make it, but. Right. He'd have the, the, we the had the bishop, yeah. He was most. And I don't think it was who was the bishop, Barbarino. Bar- Barberito. Yeah. Barberito. That's mm-hmm. the one. Yeah, because mm-hmm. uh, Bishop Lavalley wasn't there. I mean, That's he was right. after I was confirmed. Um, yeah, Cunning, Barberito, Cunningham, and then Lavalley. Mm-hmm. Yep, and then uh, and, and Bishop Lavalley's from Morris. So I mean, he's, he's I know local. he's a hometown boy. Yeah, local guy. Yep. Um, I think his. I don't know if his sister or cousin. Like we had some Lavallies and Chasey, of so course they were, they're still there. They're all the family. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, my my first full assignment actually as a deacon was in West Chasey and Chasey. I was up that okay. way for about three years. Who was before the priest there? Was it Father, Father Roger McGinnis? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. he used to be at Plattsburgh for a bit. He was in the city for a while. Yeah, yeah, but he at the college also. Didn't Correct he? at the Newman Center, he was there yes. for a while. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I remember him from there. And we, mm-hmm. when I was in, we had Father Gardner years ago, and then Father Gordon. Oh, who's yes. Father yeah, Gordon's yeah. still around. I think he's at St. Alexander's now. In Morrisonville. Yep. yep. Um, so he's actually like, I live in Morrisonville. He's like a mile away from me. I haven't seen mm-hmm. him in a long time, but he, yeah. was, he was always a really yeah. nice guy. And um, I think Father, is it Ted is there now? Ted Crosby, yep. Yep. So Father Ted and before was Father Ray. And then there was like kind of a... Yeah, Father but, Ray was in Shazy. So, well, it was Father Ray and then Father McGinnis and then Father Crosby. Okay. So my last mm-hmm. time I really went was back with Father Gordon. A that little was, bit that of, was before Father Ray. Okay. A little overlap with Father Ray, but not much. Yep. It was mostly... Uh, that was a few years ago. Father Gordon was like... Yeah, I was in high school. That Father Gordon was the one that did all my... All, yeah, pretty much everything. Father Gardner, I believe, did my first communion and mm-hmm. baptism. Mm-hmm. Um, can you baptize? Yeah. can baptize. I can marry. Mm-hmm. Marry, okay. Mm-hmm. And then um, I'm trying to think... I mean, you pretty much use, like I said, uh, um, last rites and, and, and confession and stuff that's reserved for the priest. Correct. And, and you can't run a full mass by yourself. No, You're always kind of the right hand person of the priest. That's correct. Gotcha. Occasionally, we might do a communion service, but um, that that would be rare, and that that would be with already um, hosts that have already been um, consecrated that are unreserved in the tabernacle. So, and again, I, I'm assuming I mean, obviously the being a deacon um, is another complete part of like it's it's a portion of your life, but like it it's like your full life, but it's. It's just a, a whole other subset that most people don't do. That, that's so, correct. Like I don't yeah. know. I don't know many deacon. We had a deacon for the longest time. Deacon Leclerc, I think it was. Um, but there's not many deacons that you see. Like it's no. So we actually have ten in the in the city of Plattsburgh right now. Oh uh, wow, which okay. is a huge number um, of deacons. Seven are active. Three have retired. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I just think because I forgot who told me that you were you were a deacon at one point, mm-hmm. and uh, I've heard from multiple people, and I was like, oh, I know Brian, but it's like mm-hmm. I didn't didn't know at the time, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's not something I broadcast so much to the student base, but well, um, well the uh, for the longest time, I and mean, I was I want to get a priest on the podcast. I have a lot of questions. Just mm-hmm. like I, I'm interested, like I don't I don't go anymore, but I still find that there's so many I, there's a lot of stuff that I think is like I interesting and in, like even just the history and everything and how it all works and in the internal work, um, aspect of it, I think it's fascinating, but mm-hmm. um, no, it's cool. Like I figured I'd ask you cause I think, Oh yeah. 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 It's just, no, it's it's just kind of, right. it's a cool thing. Like I just, yeah. I, I still find it's fascinating and, mm-hmm. and all religion 
I, I Nick, at some point in time, I think I'll read through. I've never read through the Bible. I mean, you read mm-hmm. passages and you hear them sure. you know, at church, yeah. but like they actually sit and read through it. Mm-hmm. I would love to do that. And there's some other, um, you know, spiritual books or religious books I'd like to read through just to see, like, the, you know, the because there's a lot of similarities. There's different ways of doing it, but this it seems like there's a lot of uh, spiritual similarities and like how people want to, um, you know. And I think it's just kind of cool to see different aspects and kind of like I said, that knowledge base and learn it. But I think it's. Be yeah, interesting to read about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's you know it's, it's important to understand that you know um, when we think about being a good person, you talk about you know not really going to church but living by the golden rule and and all of those things. Wonderful, wonderful things as examples. But I think it's important to understand where do all of our reasonings for that come from? You know, how do we? what does it mean to be a good person? Where does that information come from? And it all comes from the, the Bible. And if we look at any any individual and they say, well, I'll go to church, but I'm, I'm spiritual, I'm a good person. Okay, yeah, I agree. And you're a good person because that's kind of what the Bible tells us to do. And that's what a good person is according to Christ. And that's why Christ made us that way. Um, and so what I think Christ is asking us to do is, is, you know, I've kind of given you this roadmap as humanity or I've created you this way. This is how we should lead our lives and how we should behave. Um, and I've developed you as a person, as a community of people. And so the, he has an expectation that people worship as a community, which is the reason for the, for the church. It's where you go and you worship as a community. He give thanks for what Christ has given to you. Understanding that when we talk about, I lead a good life, we lead a good life because that's what the Bible tells us we should do. And that's, that's really what it comes down to. And that's the fundamental drive of, of, of religion. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, like I said, it's, it's a fascinating topic, and I think, like I said, obviously, you know, living a certain way. And I, I do I think that some of those uh, eighteen plus years of, has rubbed off on me in a certain way. Absolutely, <laughs> you know, you grow up in it, and, I and, do, and but it formulates, yeah, yeah, it formulates what you, yeah. uh, you know, your past experience formulate now, mm-hmm. and it's just. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I think it's like I said, it, it's it's. I feel I feel like I'm more um, fascinated by it now than it was back then. I think I have a better appreciation for it, having lived a little bit longer and more experiences and mm-hmm. that how happens. it all ties together. I mean, so That happens. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. well, Brian, Deacon Brian, Dr. Naruth, or whatever. We get a lot of titles. <laughs> I, lot, I lot do. A lot of cool I, titles. I, I like keep it. busy. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. That's good. But um, I appreciate you coming on. and. Thank you. Uh, you know, it's good good to catch up, and, and obviously, like I said, I, I still see stuff from afar, and, and you know, every I, th- I think we communicate a couple times a year, you know, yes, mostly by right. email, but that's right. That's um, right. Yeah. It, it's 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 good to have you on, and uh, like I said, this, it's cool to see like your growth too, from what I you know, I obviously knew you ten, ten years ago, that's right. and uh, I didn't realize you were just back in the North Country, but here you are. Like I said, I think I think doing some cool stuff, and uh, you know, obviously a big uh, a. A big, uh, what's it called? Playing a big role on multiple fronts within the community, mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. that's neat. But yeah. um, if anybody wants to find you, we'll, you know, obviously we, we'll put some stuff for you. But you know, the School of Business and Economics at Plattsburgh. Mm-hmm. I'm a, um, an alumni of it, a big fan of it. I do think a yeah. lot of uh, local kids should check it out if they do I think agree. it's too too close. Maybe it's not close. I, like I said, <laughs> you'll be surprised. I think, but I think uh, it's they uh, can still live on campus. Yeah, yep. Plattsburgh is a good thing. I'm a big, mm-hmm. big, big fan of Plattsburgh State. So, yep. um, but one there, Brian. Thank you so much again. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks and, for the invitation. Uh, yeah, yeah. this is episode two hundred seven of the Galen Trombley Show. We're out. Thank you for listening to the Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on all social platforms at Galen Trombley. Thanks for listening.